Welcome to Mechanations, a critical analysis and rewatch podcast where, thanks to Amuro, we got that whole conversation on video. Joining me in this sting operation are my co-hosts and confidants, Stephen Hero and PMC Trilogy. I just want to clear something up. That's a that's a joke from the show. The you will never see video of this show of this podcast. <laughs> we will not. We will never. If if we ever do like a video, po- I guess that's a lie because everyone knows what PMC looks like because you're a streamer. So you could just go on to pm twitch.com slash PMC Trilogy and see what PMC looks like any old time in in black and white. Uh, uh, we only Steven and I know what BMC looks like uh, in in full RGB. <laughs> I've thought about potentially one day I'm probably going to do a panel at an anime convention. I thought of, you, th- that's like potentially the only way you see my face. But I thought I theorized because when all the uh, conventions were going online, some were requiring webcams. Even though I didn't do any of those, I was thinking maybe I'll wear a zero mask or something like that to hide my face if I'm doing a Code Geass history retrospective. You might be joking right now, but if you see me on camera, I am in costume. No one's seen me outside of uh, outside of like a like a Simone outfit, like in my in my profile picture on Twitter, or like a like a Char mask or mm-hmm. or something like that. That's that's I'm not even joking. I'll, I'll find something to, 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 to you know to hide my. Identity. I, I believe you. I know you're working on it. I 100. <laughs> percent That's that is not a joke. Um, but speaking of, of things that are not joke, oh no, I shouldn't joke about that. We, there was discourse about that. Never mind. Speaking of, <laughs> speaking of things that no one has ever had discourse about ever in, in history, Metroid. <laughs> there is so much Metroid discourse yeah, that, was, that, that we could be talking about, but I'm going to talk about. Joke, Steven. <laughs> well, we're not, I'm not diving into, we're diving into zero mission, uh, baby. No, no, I know. I know. It's fine. It's just, I, I, you are my good friend and I appreciate you. That was all I was saying. <laughs> Go ahead. Tell us about Metroid Zero Mission. All right. So as I know, if, if you listen to video game podcasts recreation, they're really like enthusiast podcasts about video games. I'm sure 90% of them are talking about the new hotness, which is Metroid Dread, which I have no thoughts about yet. I don't even own a copy. I, I eventually will. I don't know if any of us do, actually. We're, we're not very trendy <laughs> this year. That's fine. That's fine. You know, as the marketing material for the game like points out, and it, it's very explicit in this, uh, Metroid Dread is the conclusion of a five-game saga that started with the first Metroid in 1986. Um, so I decided to, leading up to it, because I still got a little time before SMT5 comes out, that I'm going to play one a week. And it's, it's a real sweet spot because it's very easy to finish a 2D Metroid game, um, for the most part, in a week span, playing like an hour or two a night. Unfortunately, those games are not easy to come by. It, I should note that, I think I've mentioned my great video game purge of like my early college years, but I got rid of a lot of games. My mother saved a cardboard box um, that she located about three years ago with a bunch of them. And I do have a copy of Zero Mission and Prime for the GBA. However, I decided to dust off the old Wii U um, because I thought I had some points still left on an old like a gift card. Um, e- whatever they call them, E-Points, Nintendo Points, whatever they call them, I had enough to buy Super Metroid, Zero Mission, and Fusion. And I, it's, I gotta say, I don't know how many of you have picked up a Wii U recently, but it's, more, it's a little more ergonomic than I remember because I'm very partial to handheld gaming. I know I... I Ignis, PMC, had, are you docked or undocked when you're playing Switch? Docked. But, uh, uh, you know... Um, Usually docked? But, like... Doc- at this point, the only time I'm playing Switch is travel. So, like lately, it's been undocked. Mm. So, so the dongles, uh, they, um, they, they. <laughs> I hate to admit this in front of PMC for so many reasons. <laughs> oh gosh, this is old lore. 
but the the dongles hurt my hands. <laughs> <laughs> they it, this really started with Demon X Machina, which I was mm. uh, I was playing um, uh, undocked for a really long time, and and it and it turned my hand into a gnarled claw. Uh, and so, because that game's intense, like, there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of beat, you know, you, you need a lot to react to, and there's a lot of, you know, action gameplay, but um, I prefer Docked in general for, uh, it. De- I, uh, I know I've talked about this before, it depends on the game I'm playing. If mm. I'm playing Castlevania Aria of Sorrow, then I'm playing Undocked, uh, because that's a Game Boy Advance game, <laughs> but um, to speak to the Wii U and ergonomics, like, you, I mean, I don't know, I can't speak for PMC, who does not hold... Uh, fond feelings for hardware at all i don't think but which is admirable good for him but um you know we i thought was a good console i mean you know they just they just put everything that was good on there on the switch except for xenoblade chronicles x but um you know i i played the shit out of my wii u i mean mostly because i i was lucky and i lived in a household with people that wanted to play smash 4 so Mm-hmm. Got a lot of use of it out of it, and Bayonetta two came out on the Wii U. Bayonetta two fucking rules, and uh, you know, uh, but what else did I play on that? Uh, 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 I mean, it's other stuff. Twilight Princess HD, Wind Waker, those sure. are still locked well, on the Wii U. That's up in my. Uh, I've got a uh, got it over here. It was gonna give it over to a uh, PMC if uh, if it went on the poll, and it didn't yet. Well, yeah, but it's in right now. Time Splitters and Twilight Princess are in a, in a battle for my, my current current future gaming option. Pretty sure I already that, voted on that, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I would vote for Twilight Princess on there. Fucks Time Splitters. <laughs> Haven't you played some? I don't know Time Splitters. Whatever. Who gives a shit? It's like uh, you know, it was a, the first person shooter on the PS2 is like a dual sticks. Whoa! I'm sorry. I'm being sh- wow. <laughs> <laughs> being a piece of shit. I'm Time Splitters seems like a real PMC game though. No, people love time splitters. I'm I'm just being shitty. It's fine. Uh, and Stephen, uh, what were you saying about the the Wii U and ergonomics and and uh, uh, Metroid? Well, the transition from like playing Switch, a lot of Switch, and going to the Wii U, um, playing on the contr- the the main controller with the screen. I don't know the terminology for game that. Pad? It's not like I'm playing it. Game. There you go. Thank you, PMC. The gamepad. Um, but it's it's a surprising sweet spot for me because I play a lot of um, portable games and particularly portable games in bed as I'm before I go to sleep. Uh, the GBA emulation is really, really good on the Wii U. Uh, Zero Mission looks really great on a slightly bigger screen, but not like too big. It's not like you're, it's blown up to the size of a 60-inch television screen. And the colors really pop. Um, if you remember, the gamepad has a lot of fuzziness on the screen. Mm. Um, but it's, it, it still looks really good for a console that you know has seen some wear and tear. But Are surprisingly, you- there's another cool feature about the Wii U that I forgot about. You can tap. There's a, if you're playing the virtual console... Um, that's a name I haven't heard in a long time. Um, there's a little question mark in the left, lower left-hand corner. You can just bring up the instruction manual, which is super cool. It does yeah. like bring you out of the game. And if, especially if you're playing old games, because um, you could check without leaving the game. And if like I need to refer to, you know, what the lore is because the game doesn't give me much of it. You know, it's a cool feature. And there's some some nice illustrations in that original Zero Mission, uh, you know, instruction manual. I, I, Ignis, did I cut you off there? Did I? No, no. Well, I I was going to make a joke about uh wondering if the uh the fuzz on your on your Wii U gamepad was was just the thin layer of dust from from lack of use, which it wouldn't be on mine. I would definitely, definitely be the sort of person. PMC lived with me for for a few years. He would I'm the sort of person who would play on something with just a thin layer of dust and then PMC would just pick it up and just why and I'd be like, "Huh." huh. <laughs> 
basically that. I, if uh, I actually have the Wind Waker, the black Wind Waker Wii U with uh, the gold stencils of the various uh, Zelda iconography. Fuck yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty cool one. It is a good looking one. I actually I borrowed it to play Wind Waker HD because I was oh, looking that's to right. I was looking to borrow a disc to play Wind Waker HD, and then I believe you have it just digitally loaded on the system, so yeah. it was easier, and you weren't using it at the time. So yeah, then two years passed. It's funny. All right, so I had enough money on the card for three games: Super Metroid, uh, Zero Mission, and Fusion. I have enough for one more. I'm, I'm between two. Um, I know which one you're probably going to say, but Warrior Land 4, which is a real banger, which I don't have a copy of otherwise, or Final Fantasy Tactics Advance, which I really want to return to one day, and I think the Wii U uh, gamepad would be a perfect exp- uh, platform for that. That's Final Fantasy 9, but that's a place I'll return to someday. Sorry. Mm-hmm. That's just where you put my head. I'm sorry. Um, I, I'm in the boat right now. I have a cloak on. I'm in the boat. It's a rainstorm. I'm at um, sea. Uh, uh, but no, I, I mean, you know, the, the, it, it it's fun to, cause I've, I've actually had that same thought just because that's, um, you can't avoid the zeitgeist, you know, uh, I mm-hmm. feel like a lot of people have in the same vein have been returning to Kingdom Hearts games recently because of the, the hype surrounding Sora and Smash, uh, 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 you know, for better or for worse. And because probably, um, everyone got real excited when they saw Kingdom Hearts was coming to Switch and then instantly unexcited when they saw that all of them were going to be cloud versions for some reason. And so, you know, everyone's like, well, I guess I'll just play the one I have. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's why, that's why Rockstar delisted all of the GTA games as soon as they announced the definitive editions. They didn't, right. didn't want to do that again. Right. Obviously, I have other comments about that, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. Different podcast. Um, the di- the discourse is just percolating yeah. beneath us. Yeah, when like, you eventually replace us with um, Brosif and Casey Fru, that will be the uh, <laughs> that will be the uh, that, the topic. Yeah, that's when we that's when I start a Sopranos podcast. But that's not that's not. <laughs> yo <laughs> yo yo yo! I'm on that podcast as, a res- as the probably resident Sopranos fan. I would love to show up for five minute bits about how this episode of Sopranos is still mech related. It's like, hey, it's Ignis from Mechanations. Let me tell you how this one, this how this gabagool. Anyway, um, the thing I was going to ask PMC, uh, it, this is only kind of on topic, and I apologize for diverting, but is, but forgive me if I'm right. I guess I could look this up. Is Wind Waker is your current favorite Zelda game? Is it not? Oh yeah, I'm According- pretty sure that's correct. I, I, uh, yeah. I, I can I can answer that question fairly quickly, but yeah. the. I'm pretty sure it's yes because I know I, I ranked it over Breath of the Wild, and the other Zelda game I'd finished was uh, Minish Cap, which is good. Minish Cap, yeah, Minish, Minish Cap, Cap was, was also good. Good one, yeah. uh, but like, actually, think, you know what? Yeah, I should buy that on the Wii U Virtual Console. Ooh. That sprite work is fantastic. Oh, have you have you played Minish Cap, uh, Stephen? Yeah, it's been ages though. I don't Minish have Cap's a card good. anymore, but I had it on GBA. Minish Cap is good. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a bunch of that's the thing about the Game Boy Advance. This is why um Nintendo sucks is that um they they have incredible libraries that are uh entirely inaccessible to an average consumer. You know, obviously there there's a lot of um uh, solutions and uh I think it was last episode even where I I might have said my opinion about some of those solutions. Um but you know, uh, on the on a nicer note, uh, you know, as the the sort of r- relevant or not resident is what I meant to say, resident um, uh, Zelda person, I, I deeply respect Wind Waker being up there. Zelda has this interesting lifespan as a game series where, um, and and you know, you'll have exceptions. Like pretty much everyone loved Breath of the Wild, even though I, I I'm kind of in the camp that thinks that's slightly surprising. But I think a, a big part of it has to do with the novelty of the Switch. But anyway. 
uh, Wind Waker is cool and good. But hey, Stephen, you were telling us about Zero Mission. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, so the other reason why I wanted to play Zero Mission, other than I had time, it's part of the zeitgeist, and I love Metroid, is I the the Metroid stories never stick with me. Like I could say, like I could laugh at a joke about I don't know a reference to the Chozo or Mother Brain or something like that, and I know, know like the bare bones stories, but they've just evaporated from my mind over the years. And I kind of want to be have like a working knowledge of them, especially going forward if there are new Metroid games coming out. Um, and Zero Mission has a pretty bare bones plot. I mean, it's bare bones on purpose. Most of them are. You got you got Samus, bounty hunter, traveling to Zebus. Uh, space pirates, they picked up some Metroids. They're going to turn them into biological weapons. Uh, they turned a, like a former Chozo settlement into a base, and they're using that former technology to their advantage. And Samus has to dismantle it because, you know, kind of like Gundam, the Federation there sucks and can't, like, do shit for shit. So they got to call on the big guns, which is Samus. And, yeah, I, guess, I think that's the plot. I think that's actually the plot as it says it in the instruction manual. I think, Stephen, if your mm. goal here is to have more of a chewy connection to the lore uh i think your your path must lead you down the to the extended universe i think because that's where i think most of it comes mm. from yeah so, i think there's a lot of like metroid manga out there that's what i was going to say the the i think the nintendo power super metroid manga has quite a lot of uh of samus backstory in it and i think that's where the majority of it comes mm. from um i also i would say that metroid prime Really, you know, you know, maybe, you know, Metroid Prime has, because of all the writing in the scanner segments, has, has a lot more chewiness and, and kind of stuff implied. But Prime, you know, and maybe we'll talk about this more later, Prime is kind of its own, in its own orbit. Like the, the Prime developments, like you'll have Space Pirates and, uh, uh, Ridley and whatnot, but like that, that stuff is really elucidated more in non-Metroid game. Like, Metroid is the Steven Hero kind of thing. You know, obviously, Castlevania and Metroid are, are brought up to in the same breath all the time. But it really plays off of vibes. It is just the, yeah. the ultimate vibe game. Uh, it just gives you three or four different vibes, and you got to feel them all out. And each one will have a, a vibe upgrade and, you know... Every game has a different kind of um, flavor of that. Like a uh, zero mission, I would argue, is like a. It's like the most uh, 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 straightforward. I, I almost you'd almost call it like gothic sci-fi kind of. Where um, the the my memory of the first Metroid, and maybe you you, you can correct me, mm-hmm. is that it is uh, a, a series of uh, uh, exponentially more. Uh, angry geological areas like where mm. it's like blue zone red zone green zone you know and and they're my f- memory of them is that they're like caves and and rocky yeah. and you know full of buggy guys at ease app uh uh you know and zero mission or i'm sorry fusion because it's on a space station has a kind of different vibes going on and uh, you know, Prime starts on a space station and goes to a, a, a planet, and the planet has even different vibes to each zone. Uh, I don't know. What do you do? You think that's uh, uh, like a fair characterization? Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh yeah, I think that's perfectly fair. Um, like Zero Mission, like in the fandom, is considered like one of the all-time great remakes. Like when I was thinking about this, of course, like what remakes are considered like ho- hollowed remakes? Uh, hallowed which is the word I'm looking for there. Like, sh- like some remakes I-, I-, I hold in high regard, but that's kind of controversial, like the Shadow of the Classes remake. But like 
the Resident Evil remake, uh, remake, R-E-make, and definitely, like, Resident Evil 2 are really held as, like, fantastic remakes. And I think Zero Mission is right up there in the fandom. And I really can't say I disagree. I mean, I played Zero Mission before. Um, and I loved it then. I love it now. Like, it has the explore a new area, get a new power, test out that new power, reap the rewards gameplay cycle down to a science. And there's not an, like, an ounce of bloat on Zero Mission. It's a lean four to five hours. And it, contro- like, it controls like a dream. I, I know I'm going to have some issues when I return to Super Metroid because Samus, the controls, Samus controls a bit wonky in Super Metroid. Uh, and I think the sprite work in Zero Mission is like fucking aces. It's top notch. Looks fantastic. Um, so I'm curious how, so I finished Zero Mission. I'm curious how it'll stack up. Um, compared to the others, uh, moving on, moving up to Dread. I will say, um, despite how good Zero Mission is, it's not my preferred Metroid experience. Like, I like the 2D games. Um, I prefer the Prime games, personally. It's been a little while since I've played them, but there's a, and this is a term that's thrown about a bit too much in the video game critic space, if you ask me, but mm. there's a level of immersion that I think is really unmatched with um, the Prime games, and... Like Ignis mentioned, like a real sweet spot for me is the feeling of haunting isolation. And I think see, Zero Mission is very kinetic and very fast, and there's like a lot of enemies. Sometimes it plays out a little more like a side scroller. Like Super Metroid's the one that's like, yes, you are alone, you are isolated. And I'm curious how that, um, if my memory serves me correctly in that regard. And I think Prime really nails those feels. Um, I think Zero Mission's a little more kinetic and isn't as concerned with the atmosphere as later entries. So I'm curious to track that going forward. But I had a great time with it, and I'm looking forward to the next game on my list. Have you played all the whole Prime trilogy? No. Okay. I played Prime 1, of course. I got halfway through 2. And actually, fun fact, this is real deep lore for you listeners Ooh, out there. Deep lore. Back in middle school, uh, we all got together and had gatherings at uh, <laughs> various houses where Sunday from like 12 to 5, we'd get together and like play video games. Literally in my living room, there were like five TVs set up, and we'd each be playing our JRPGs. What, the last one I, I hosted at my house, Zero, uh, Metroid Prime 2 had just come out. I remember playing the multiplayer mode with you all uh, on that fateful day. It was a big deal because the the if you don't I don't know if you remember the like tenor of the time, but this was the 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 height, the like the nadir of or no I might be misusing nadir. Nadir's uh, low low yeah, point. The the pinnacle rather the opposite <laughs> of um, Halo being in charge of everything you know and so if if you were a first person shooter you needed to have multiplayer and so this was kind of the like. Yes, finally, Nintendo's version, you know, if you were someone who was, you know, for whatever reason, invested in Nintendo being a thing that you wouldn't have to defend yourself for, uh, uh, Metroid Prime 2 having a multiplayer, first-person shooter multiplayer mode was like, haha, take that, Halo <laughs> people, and it was like, ah, it was alright, <laughs> you know, it was fine, <laughs> it's like, I would call it like a, um... It's like a slightly upgraded version of like a GoldenEye level mm, multiplayer. And at that yeah. point, mm-hmm. Halo had far outstripped that kind of experience. And, and like, you know, but but Metroid Prime are, are cool games. PMC, why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience with Metroid Prime 1, which you started recently? Yeah. So I recently uh, began playing once again. I had played it many years ago back when i <laughs> won won a gamecube on a freak freak incident involving like uh a an auction no it was like a it was one of those raffles that they do at like um like church functions and and one and my my mother came home she's like i want a gamecube here 
I was like, all right, well, I guess I'll start borrowing games to play on GameCube. And of course, one of them was Metroid Prime, you know, probably one of the one of the uh, the top exclusives for the GameCube. And uh, it's been really fun to come back to. I was curious because it's a, it's you know it's the perspective is a first person shooter, but it is really a game about like locking on a movement. You know, is like really what you're doing. Um, and I was wondering how that would how to play because right now, if we want to get into Metroid Prime discourse, which is a much more specific niche, right now a lot of people are very excited about a hack for metroid prime that lets mm. you play it with a keyboard and mouse on dolphin that's been interesting kind of the hottest metroid prime uh thing recently separate of course from all the dread discourse people uh swear by the wii u compilations uh motion controls mm. i i am i'm not a big motion guy so i like i almost bristle at the notion but people are like dead set that is like the way to play prime um, and people, like there are already four folks too. Like the motion controls, absolutely rule. I mean, uh, uh, I thought that was a that's a Wii port, isn't it? Not Wii U. Yeah, yeah. You can buy it digitally on Wii U though. Like that's the most mm. accessible way. Actually, the Wii game is a, a hot collector's item. Yeah, yeah. That's why I was surprised. I was like, I don't, I don't know if that's a wreck. That's hard to get nowadays. <laughs> uh, yeah, I played all three Metroid Primes, uh, oh. and you know. They're, they're, you know, uh, um, the third one, the the interesting thing about that one, you know, I just, uh, we were talking about the lore. That one's got a lot of story bits in it, a lot more than, than Metroid usually. There's some talking people who know Samus, like other bounty hunters, straight up. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, the, the main memory I have of um, Metroid Prime really is the music. The the, mm. the 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 music of Metroid Prime is really, uh, uh, it's the sort of thing you can definitely throw on in a sort of like relaxing GameCube tunes playlist, like uh, the 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 drifts one. Yes, what is it? starts with a P. Fun <laughs> drifts. drifts. Yeah, ooh, that's a banger. Yes, Fendrana, that sounds right. Um, how far did you get, PMC? Are you still in that first uh, m- mud zone? So I think I just opened up the phase on mines, uh, which I think is like I want to say is like maybe like a halfway point in the game. You know, I've got the wave beam, I got the ice beam, it's got super missile, I can spider ball. Wow. So you know, wow. I'm I'm in, I'm in there. I, I just yeah. dealt with the um the big icy rock uh, golem. <laughs> you you have to view with your X ray visor to know which rock is is the vulnerable rock. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that was pretty much that. And that opened up the way to the phase on mines, uh, which was definitely, I think, another another point I remember. And uh, it's been fun. I you already kind of alluded to it, Ignis, but definitely something that has been delighting me on this playthrough, besides the, the vibes for which Prime is well known, is a lot of that scanning material. Like I, the Chozo lore, they really like put up front and center because it's got like a special sort of animation that that kind of calls for you to scan it. But I really enjoy the uh, the character that they apart. Uh, the impart to the space pirates the space pirates are just kind of these corporate goons who are just constantly trying to like find practical solutions and screw up stuff they shouldn't and be ruthless and it and the extent to which they are just sort of trying to be like regular real life evil in the metroid setting which is full of like these galactic evils is is Mm -hmm. very funny yeah, I think it's interesting how nakedly, like, the the people who were working on Metroid in the, like, Gunpei Yokoi sort of era um, didn't have an idea 
beyond the the like stuff from Alien, you know? Like the, it was like we want a Nintendo version of Alien in the same sort of way that Mario is the Nintendo version of Popeye kind of um and it, it, you could tell after Super Metroid they just there was no thought about what Metroid was going to be in a way that's interesting in a way that maybe you know we've talked about this with with uh uh Star Wars Visions for example about how you know one of the questions i had was like how accessible is the extended world of Star Wars to non-english audiences you know um and i wonder if it was just nobody at Nintendo like something in that i've noticed noticed a lot when it comes to like how projects begin at companies like this is that usually there's like a champion for that project. You know, there's usually someone who's like, Hey, and it just seems like nobody has a huge passion for science fiction at Nintendo. It looks like, or, or even like space opera, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm not even like, I'm not saying like, Oh, we need someone who's, who's like scanning stuff with their, uh, you know, tricorders or whatever. Like the, the, the closest they get there is something like Pikmin, right? Which is like a, a kind of absurdist sort of thing, uh, uh, you know, where, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean that like the, the tone of that is not meant to be like, uh, uh, like contemplative, you know, like that's, that's very much a, a, what if gardening was super zoomed in and planet wide kind of, it's very Shigeru Miyamoto in that way. And so when you, when you gave Metroid Prime or Metroid to retro studios, I wonder if there was just more, there's just more, in like uh, uh you know american culture or what sure was an american company right were they in europe so they're, they're austin, like from austin Texas. yeah okay yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. okay so yeah they're there's just there. there's just more of that in in the in the air sort of there's more like the 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 making the space pirates like a like canonically kind of a a, a ferengi type you know corporatist race or you know peoples i don't know whatever um makes sense cuz you can tell in like Metroid, Metroid Two, and Super Metroid—they're—they're they're just antagonist models, right? They're just—they're just dudes. They're praying mantis. They're big scythers, right? And it's really just the manga that characterizes any of that stuff. And you can tell that. I mean, you know, it's just the way of things. Nobody cared about that sort of stuff, especially Nintendo. They arguably still don't care. It, it's so it's interesting to where you know. Metroid started to become relevant again, and part of that is just having a direction to pursue at all, right? That's the sort of thing that I feel like when it comes to Metroid and its storytelling, you know, that's one of the challenges of it, right? Is like, uh, <laughs> when you have like an obvious, uh, you know, antecedent in, in the case of like Alien and mm-hmm. no other real, like, <laughs> thoughts about the thing. What what do you do when you know? And I forget specifically. I, was 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 Gunpei Okoye? I know he was one of the big Metroid people. Do, was he involved with Super Metroid? I thought he was just Metroid One and Two. I don't know if either any of us know this. Yeah, Sakamoto's the big Metroid. Uh, I guess creative force who was I okay. think he produced or he definitely big. He was big player with the first one. And he's continues up till this day as like the big producer oh. behind. Him. Well, anyway, the reason I mention all that is because it seems like they they eventually started to kind of pick up that ball where where Prime started to roll because immediately concurrent with Prime was Fusion, and Fusion yeah. was when they start doing the Atom stuff, right? And and if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Um, but uh, big old, don't worry about it. Uh, but like 
I, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna pitch something so, sort of controversial here. Uh, I I don't I don't really think it's a big problem if Samus had a man in her life that she admired. I I, I don't I I feel like the way this this gets talked about is is weird. There's <laughs> always has been, and like whatever, it's fine. I know it frustrates some people because it comes off like, and I didn't play. I did not play Metroid Other M, and I know that people have big problems with the way Samus is characterized in Metroid Other M. But I feel like sometimes there's this impulse to to protect female characters from femininity in a way that is like, and I get it, when dudes write women, it's obvious and bad. <laughs> See, Mecha... Mechanations episodes one through one twenty three. Yeah, one through right now, you know. And by the way, looks like next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no PMC, real quick on the scanning thing. Scanning mm. really puts Metroid Prime over the top for me in a good way um, compared to the two D entries because it creates such a an, like such a satisfying feedback loop between me, the player, and the world, um, which I really do crave when I return back to. Because I really just like to chill. Uh, in those spaces and explore those spaces, um, which why I have thoughts about Zero uh, Samus Returns, and I'm sure I have some thoughts uh, regarding Dread. Yeah, no, the scanning definitely gives it a a it gives it a sort of uh, rhythm beyond. If I were to compare playing Metroid Prime to uh, s- semi recent experiences playing, say, a- a Area of Sorrow and stuff, games like that, or mm-hmm. even Bloodstained, you know, a more recent game, I feel like the the difference between scanning and, say, the occasional cutscene that you might get in a, ca- a 2D Castlevania is that you are, of course, once again, controlling the pace. You know, and that's something that's might be, that can be difficult to do, that ability to uh, give the player a, a control over the narrative pacing. Because what that means is that they can miss a lot, too, right? And that's sort mm-hmm. of, that's like a, a Half-Life 2 is the only one I think of where there's tons of newspaper clippings. But, you know, you, you can miss those things. Yeah. Uh, but I think because of how scanning is tied into how you play the game, you know, scanning is the way you find out the ways to defeat monsters. You identify defects in walls to blow up. You know, it, it's so fundamental uh, that, that that verb is tied into exploring. Um, I don't know. I enjoy it. It's just really it, it presents a unified package in a way that's very uh, satisfying. Cool. I will say the the back half of Metroid Prime is a little rougher with some backtracking and some issues with the combat. Um, so if that rumor of a Metroid Prime remake is true, I, I look forward to potentially um, re-experiencing that in a good way. Yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like if you're playing one of these, you like backtracking, like that's uh, or or you don't mind it. Like it, it has to be because like if, if backtracking is a problem for you, these exploratory games aren't a good idea because. E- Either if if you don't like backtracking and you're playing one of these, you're following a guide, or you're you know a sadist <laughs> or, or a masochist rather. I mean, uh, so far, like the nice thing that's I think early on in a game like this too is like as you get those initial tools, not only does it allow you to get to new places, but it often allows you to traverse the old places much more effectively. I mean, you can see that right away in Prime because you can see grapple hooks throughout you know much of the early game that will allow you to bypass things that are tedious. Yeah. Um, you know things like that, and, and so I, I've I have found that like I am pleasantly surprised because I'm thinking oh, I gotta backtrack through this, and then you know enemy configurations will be different. There'll be unexpected ways to cut my trip short. Uh, so I, I have found that the level design, ideally, 
you know, to make it to make it better. Because you're right, backtracking is a part of it. But if the level design is on its game, it will be surprisingly enjoyable. Yeah. Speaking of uh, nope. Uh, <laughs> scanning, yeah. Speaking yes. of scanning and using scanning to determine the weaknesses of thermonuclear weapons, we've got this week's episodes of Mobile Suit Gundam to talk about. Are you guys ready? Please. Yes. Amaro, great work. We have this whole conversation on video. It's more than enough evidence. Good. Stand up. You will remain in the brig until the operation is complete. <sighs> Look at you. I suppose you probably want to say you've got good reasons for doing what you did, but you couldn't be more mistaken, you know that? Because of monsters like you selling us out to the Zeons, dozens of Federation soldiers have lost their lives. Do you even realize that? Their lives were wasted. Amaro. <clears throat> we'll leave the rest for the court-martial. Uh, yes, sir. All right. Mobile Suit Gundam episode 25, The Battle of Odessa, scripted by Yoshihisa Araki, unit director Shinya Salamitsu, animation director Kazuo Tomizawa, he of many squat Gundams. Uh, (laughs) Everyone, especially Amuro, is real bummed out about Matilda, but the war marches on. Sela and Amuro are out practicing in the G-Fighter and manage to catch sight of Judok heading out from a Zeon base. Suspecting Spycraft to be responsible for the precision of recent Zeon attacks, Bright allows Amuro and Sela to follow suit. They land on Big Trey, and Amuro is taken to Elrond, who has already met with Judok. Amuro, that's a lot of fucking names, right? Just as an aside from this summary, what a bunch of names that is. Um, uh, Amuro confronts Elrond with what he knows, and Elrond Hubbard tries to kill Amuro to keep his mouth shut. Luckily, the whole thing was a sham designed to get Elrond to confess, and Amro and Sela are able to make it back to the White Base to help defend it for Mortiga and Gaia, the remaining members of the Black Tri-Stars. Makave was depending on Elrond's treachery in his strategy, and since that clearly didn't work out, he moves to plan B. Nukes! He launches a nuke at the Federation forces, and Amro is able to destroy the detonator on the rocket, preventing the devastating effects of the nuclear weapon. The Federation's able to win today, but Makave gets away scot-free. He imagines with what he's uh, he has secured, Zeon can continue fighting for ten more years. All right, so episode twenty-five is uh, is a lot of business. The 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 um maybe it's just been me, but these last four episodes have been dense. There's a, not a lot of like uh, characterization going on in in some of these bits, but there has been a lot of like plot happening. Uh, it's not this one, but I think it's the next one that opens with, uh, <laughs> I guess I'll talk about it. And the next one opens up with footage of, of Amuro doing that thing. And I was losing my mind. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> we've gone back in time. But no, it's not, I it's always, not this one. I, I will talk about it. I always got to check. Am I watching the right episode? Um, we've got, um, we've got some boys mad at Amuro for being, uh, uh, you know, cranky. Uh, they blame it on the Matilda thing. Do we know who these guys are? I don't think this is Omer. Or um, no. uh, I mean, uh, I mean uh, Job it is, John. It's, it's like short Job John, the the lesser <laughs> Job John, John Job, Job John the lesser, yeah, John Job, <laughs> Job John the lesser, evil evil Job Sounds John, like a Homestar run character, yeah, George instead of, John, instead of uh, no, that was Omer who blew up uh, cousin, I forgot, um, <laughs> yeah, evil Job John, he who he uh, unloads the uh, ammunition instead of putting it on, uh, but yeah, Omero's distracted about this whole piece, uh, you know. I kind of expected this Matilda stuff to be uh, a bigger, like, uh, uh, presence than it is in the episode, actually. Um, Same. 
Oh, okay. I was about to ask, did, did, were you guys surprised with the way that it's kind of, I don't want to say forgotten, but like, you know, I expected this to be a huge deal that like Amuro would be thinking about this for at least one more episode. And then, uh, you know. It feels way too neatly slotted because I feel like the, the times it comes up in this episode are, are now and then after Elrond's exposed. And it just, it, it gets like slotted very neatly into his motivations you know rather than mm. anything else I, one of the things i had to note was just i felt like this episode was unusually harmonious like in general i mean we, we get the matilda stuff is i think the most pressing example of it but uh you know in general when it comes to any of the white base crew interacting with each other like truly it feels like we have i mean either all hatches have been buried or we have forgotten everything so that's that short to our memory of the show but yeah i agree i mean there's a not a consistency, because I think it's giving the writing too much credit, but there aren't too many, like, obstacles, internal struggles the characters have to overcome. And, that like, there's a little less Tomino whiplash with how the characters interact, because there's, there's like, a direction, a straight shot they're all taking to get to their objective, which I guess makes sense. They're surrounded by, you know, battle on all sides. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the thing with this one, at least, is that there, because it's a... Because this one is a straightforward military operation and the episode is largely focused on that and gives the main character some business to take care of within that that battle, it, it feels very complete to me. It feels like a sort of uh, platonic ideal version of the militaristic Gundam, mm-hmm. right? Like, we're yeah. not in um, psychic zone quite yet. You could argue that um, Amaro having his little moment when he touches the G fighter is it could be, you know, signs of that sort of thing. But this is also a very classic anime way to remind the audience, you know, that he's kind of associates the G fighter with Matilda in a way, um, which is interesting because the G fighter does not appear in the movies, (laughs) but that's fine. Um, You know, whatever. Who needs motifs? (laughs) It's fine. Um, Speaking of the G fighter PMC, uh, I wanted to ask because I know you're you're keeping track. Um, how about that Schrodinger shield this episode, right? Dude, how did it like, come back? Like it, it gets destroyed it, twice in the episode. It, it gets popped off the plane, and then later <laughs> off it gets sliced in half yeah. because Gundam just has it again. It's really good. I know oh. we're not. We, we keep saying we're not going to talk about it like Voyager and the Shadows, but like now I can't help. But I can't notice help. It. I, 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 yeah. it's, it's like to be clear, it's not like the end of the world. It is not no, the the no, ding, no. but it's funny to keep track of. <laughs> well, like you know, and like I don't. Again, I don't want to be a sinker here. I know why it's happening. That that's they have a shot already rigged up that they can use of the G fighter getting hit, and it happens to be the one where the shield fucking falls off. It's just really funny to me. So, so Sela and uh, uh, Amuro are practicing their route. They're doing one of those speed runs that you do uh, cooperatively at the or or one of those you know races where it's at the same time. And while they're doing that, they run into the Zionic front, not the game, but where where Makave's you know forces are are uh, you know I don't know uh, hunkered down. Yeah, sure. Um, and they witness the dragonfly, which they scan with Samus's scanner visor, uh, <laughs> and uh, lift off here. And this is where, hmm, okay. So if there's one thing, I, I complimented the episode for being uh, uh, dense, densely packed, and you know having grand designs while also giving its characters business to take care of. But if there's one thing I don't really love about this episode is how the Judok and 
Elrond thing isn't like an enormous deal, right? Um, you know, we, I'm, I'm not positive about this, and I'm sure there's an answer, but I, it's not in the show, so I don't necessarily care. But Elrond seems like really high up. Like it, he seems like he's it, he's he is in the same room as the commander in chief of the the Federation forces most time, and he has the power to affect the Federation front in huge ways apparently because Makave's whole strategy apparently is is depending on Elrond you know sabotaging his own forces, and you know once we deal with it it's kind of done you know uh, Amuro is the only one who has any real like uh catharsis on the on behalf of the audience there but like i'm i'm a little surprised that this isn't like a like a whole other plot right where like elrond says some shit where he's like you know i don't know hail hydra and he bites down on a fucking you know (laughs) gundam loves its espionage shit which we'll we'll talk about more next episode so i'm surprised that elrond didn't have a you know, a space arsenic tooth for him to bite down on and to avoid capture or whatever. Because, like, there's a world where it, he, you know, Amuro's like, why did you do it? I'm sure you had good reasons. And he's like, not really. I love being rich. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I just, I, I love the aristocracy. Because that's the thing. You could definitely paint Zeon and people who support Zeon as, like, you know, um, uh, uh, like technocrats, right? Like, as people... Who, who believe that they should rule things because they have the best shit, you know? And it, it, it's kind of weird to have it brushed aside. And, like, especially, there are two weird choices in this episode, in my opinion. The, the first one is the Elrond stuff being kind of done with and, and left alone, just because I think it's too juicy to, to leave alone, right? There, yeah, there could have been, like, a great, like, again, if Gundam kind of broke from the big robot battle per episode, there could have been a great, like, court-martial episode where we really get to, like, the th- we get really into the thick of it and learn more about, like, why Elrond turned. And they could have made it a little bit more complex and shed some light on the inner workings of both the Federation and Zeon, but, you know. I think nah. the other, oh, sorry, uh, the other mistake it makes is the nuke thing. Um, and, and I think the nuke thing is, is a mistake because it's... <laughs> it's too pat. It's not, it's not just Pat. I mean, like, obviously, yes, it is Pat. But, like, um, I don't know. What would the... <sighs> it's such a huge move, right? It's it's such a, like, like... All right, so, obviously, like, there's a way you can do this, and it, and it becomes, like, trivialized in, in a cartoon show sort of way, right? Like, the bad guys are going to have doomsday weapons. Like, we've seen... Kaecilia and Makve use mobile armors with, with, you know, maybe not this kind of capacity, but, but comparable destructive power, right? The thing about using a nuke is that it changes the context of what we're talking about, right? We're not talking about science fiction laser guns anymore. You're, you're talking about a, a thing that, you know, famously America dropped on people, <laughs> you know, um, and not people, not just people, specifically Japan. <laughs> And so, and I'm not saying, like, now this is serious mode. That's not necessarily what I think their intention was. But I think, and especially to have, the, I don't think that was their intention because they have Makave say, literally, I'm going to throw a nuke at you guys. I know that's against the rules. And shout-outs to Amuro when he learns about this because he has the exact same reaction I have would have had in that moment, which is like, but that's against the rules. <laughs> 
which just goes to show how naive I and Amro are, you know, <laughs> when it comes to treaties. But what I mean by that is also like, I don't know. How do I put this? I think what they're going for is, I guess, you know, before I hash out my feelings about this, did you guys have thoughts about Makvei's use of the, the nuke? You know, I know we're jumping ahead. That's like the last thing, mm-hmm. really, but... I, I think it's one of the bigger issues in the episode, and I'm, I'm curious if, if you guys had any big... Have you had any nuclear takes? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. This is the episode where, like, uh, I keep on... Not, now you're you're winning me over. You're selling me, Ignis. Like, Makvei. I always think like Makuvei, but Makvei is like he... Reve- don't, he takes off the mask. Don't, 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 you can, don't follow my lead on this. Like, this is me listening to, we had, we had a, Why is a nice cadence? We, we, we had a listener mention, um, oh gosh, I can't remember who it was specifically. Gosh, it might be Dovetail, Dove, Dovetail Echo, a listener who chimes in every once in a while. If I, if I got your Twitter handle wrong and I apologize, whoever mentioned this. Uh, but, you know, listening to the way they say it, it sounds like they're just saying McVeigh. Like, it, it sounds like it's it's Japanese, you know, uh, 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 saying the the name McVeigh. And, and I also just like saying it that way. But I'm not I, I didn't translate this shit. They, somebody translated it and released it in English. Right. And I shouldn't just say what they say, but I, I like McVeigh better. <laughs> so listen. I, I'm not an expert. It's not me saying this is the best way to say it. I just think it, it flows a little bit better. But anyway, Stephen, what, what were you saying about Makvei's mask coming off? And now he's like, he's a full-on Bond villain this episode. Like, the way he holds himself, the way he announces himself, and just, I mean, there is no subtlety about this. He is, like, the premise is a little hokey. Like, given the constraints of episodic storytelling, I, I get it. But, the, like, the writers kind of, like, back themselves into a corner here. And I would like the, them to, like, I don't know, focus on this a bit more. The fact that Zion is just willingly, like, is, one second is ready to use a nuke on these people. And, uh, you know, I also wonder how Tomino feels about just, like, the nuclear bomb that can be disabled by a well-placed lightsaber slash. I mean, he's, he's very concerned about, he's very picky with when he's very concerned about realism. And it, it's difficult, to, it's a difficult to pill to swallow because there's so many episodes sympathizing the Zeon and yet all we see is Zeon in full mustache twirling mode and it's frustrating because you know next episode we're going to get a more of an interrogation of the Federation which is definitely apt but it could be apt if we had more context about them and yet I feel like Zeon doesn't really get any of that yeah I think the follow-up on the the nuclear part of it the um I guess it just it's like I feel like it's a very normal thing to have happen when you have two sides playing for power that one side that really really means it is going to be willing to break the rules you know in that in that quest for power that's something that you know you you really have to be aware of and so i'm I'm glad this kind of situation is presented in the show, but at the same time it feels like there is a like the only person who I feel like really sort of acknowledges, like, yeah, I kind of expected this, is, is the whole bit with with Revel and his and his wave. He's like, yeah, look, whatever, we just got to we just got to roll. Uh, but like, you know, outside of that, it, I don't feel like it's it gets picked up again. Maybe there isn't anything to do with it. As far as the over the top nature of the lightsaber swing, it was interesting. It definitely was some whiplash going from the the very wartime story of the spying and the deployment of nuclear weapons to what felt like something out of a just cause game <laughs> which definitely it's true this is me, your wheelhouse piece right too. it took me by surprise because you know just cause two and three have very famous bits where the main character is riding a rocket to disable it um you know which is 
an interesting visual image. I almost, w- I, almost, I almost wish maybe we got the version where Gundam lands on the missile and then cuts it, you know, instead of just doing the, the swing in, in midair. Um, so I don't know. It's a, it's a bit of whiplash. I like, I like these things being deployed and brought up, um, but I definitely, because it's so dense, I wish, I don't know, like I want more time for these particular moments because they are important. You know, it isn't obvious. Bad guys will break the rules. What What does that mean? Uh, or, yeah, like or we even. always say, like someone comment about it, like for more than just like a throwaway line. Mm. Yeah. So my big thing here, um, I I agree, PVC, with what you have to say about the kind of um, Game of Thronesian yeah, sort of that's... like, uh, uh, you know, uh, almost like a harsh pill to swallow sort of worldview that this is espousing about, you know the use of treaties or something like that right like this is this is a pretty effective sort of like or not effective but rather uh instantaneous show of the power of such a thing in the hands of somebody like Makave who's not you know it, it isn't it invested in this in a moral way at all and like obviously you know uh america has history of ignoring things <laughs> like this all the time right yes. like this is just a thing that happens <laughs> so you know the thing that i I that bothers me about it is that is to put it in Makave's uh, hands in particular makes this seem like something. This to me is kind of like a bad apples. I feel like they're trying to paint situation uh, where okay. it's like no, no, no. Someone like Rambara would never. Mm-hmm, Makave mm-hmm. just bad. He's just a bad one. And I'm, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that it makes me wonder like- if we'll ever get like um, you know, like. So it's very established at this point that Makuve is an underling of Cassilia. You know, what does Cassilia right. think about the deployment of the nuke? You know, is she different? Is is Giran different? Um, yeah, I don't know. Well, I, I'll be curious to see if this is ever brought up, if this yeah. is a true crossing of the line. I mean, the nuke didn't go off, so maybe, you know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it might be the other ex- you know, outcome here. I mean, uh, as I understand it, you know, the biggest example I can think of, because obviously of the American education system, of, of consequences for, you know, war crimes or treaty violations or what have you would be, you know, what happened to Germany post-World War II. Like, that's the main thing I think of when it comes to, you know, actually and World War One. now that I think about it. Um, when it comes to this sort of thing, and like, you know, if I'm Makave, I'm like, well, what the fuck are they going to do? <laughs> like, they don't have, they, if, if they can't win the war, they certainly can't, you know, impose some kind of consequences on us for breaking the stupid treaty. Which, you know, if you go and you read that treaty, uh, uh, you can find, the, uh, you know, analysis of it that breaks down how Xeon accepting that treaty has a lot to do with just buying time. Like, I don't think at any point they were really on board with the the idea of like limiting the the sort of casualties of the battle i mean you know this is uh, this is the antarctic treaty right yes the antarctic treaty this this is the thing about all of the like messy canon of i almost said star wars holy <laughs> shit <laughs> the, all the messy canon of mobile suit gundam because uh, on one hand you know n- none of the stuff that brings about the antarctic treaty is in the show and some of that apparently gets gets borne out a little bit more in the novels that were coming out at the same time. And obviously the canonicity of the novels is kind of like suspect or or in debate or what have you. Um, but the the understanding of the Antarctic Treaty, as as we discussed it a couple episodes ago, was that you know as the result of a number of Zeon actions against colonies, the Antarctic Treaty was designed 
on on one hand for, by the Federation to prevent the use of uh you know uh weapons of mass destruction in the you know to prevent assured destruction and on the Xeon side to buy time in order to rebuild the, the you know the resources that they've committed and you know the thing about that what that says to me is that the the subtext there is that Xeon as a nation as an ideology is is one of like pragmatism right where it's it's less about the the spirit of the law than whatever their whatever their goal or ambition is right like and so you know for McVeigh to not give a shit about the 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 treaty feels just like that that I mean to me that must be the the default Zeon position right like if if you know and and there are probably people who disagree there's the Rambarals who seem like I don't I see I don't know I I feel like for a Rambaral you know there's there's that moment where he he stops Frau Bao in the hallway and he's like you know if you're holding a weapon, you're my enemy and doesn't shoot a child there. Right. Um, but he's still holding a, an assault on a base full of children (laughs) and he might not know that yet, but I'm not sure if he's a dude who's really like, you know, Oh man, we got to uphold this treaty. Like, and, and so the thing that I'm worried about is, is a sort of like, well, Makve is this sort of like convenient bad apple that we can assign this, this action to rather than this is typical of Zeon. You know, they I mean, it has to be. I mean, they dropped a colony on Earth. I mean, that is the power of five. Like, if you were just a Zeon rank and fire soldier, I mean, that theoretically that's the turning point. And if you're committed to Zeon after that, you're committed to the cause. There's really no other way. Yeah, I mean, well, that's my point. Is that like, and this is why I'm bringing up the canonicity of of stuff being messy. Is that like, you know, the the Antarctic Treaty coming about is after Zeon has has dropped colonies, and maybe depending on how much you think about this being canon, maybe gassed the colonies first, <laughs> you know, like to me and whether or not this is like, that's like a moot issue for you is, is, you know, neither here nor there. Like definitely something probably happened to the colonists before the colonies got dropped. But it's, it's one of those things that I'm, I'm curious, you know, this, this would just be such a huge deal. <laughs> like, to, I, I, I- I can't believe like, no one reflects on it. Like, I can't believe like Bright doesn't take a drag from a cigarette and go like, you know, this is kind of why I joined the Federation. Like, uh, gr- grandma in Australia died because like a plate from a space colony fell on her and the Xeon dropped on it. So, you know, that's why I signed up or something like that. I mean, we've mentioned this time and time again, but the- dropping a nuclear weapon should be a bigger deal or deploying a nuclear weapon should be a bigger deal. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is this is one of those things because um, especially I think the this is going to get way messier in the next episode. <laughs> Where um uh some uh, a plot detail changes in in a way that um might be frustrating for us, but we'll see. Um, you know, uh the after uh the they spot the dragonfly. We're, I'm gonna cutting us back to the the main plot here for a sec. Um, because I I wanna I feel like I'm gonna get hyper fixated on the nuke thing. Um, uh, so let's get back on track here. After they see the dragonfly flying away, Sela and Amro uh, follow it to Big Trey. Which is um uh I, I guess it's it's Elrond's like fortress yeah uh, it's or, like a like another hover ship like a moving land fortress right oh I actually like this can I, can I talk about the scene real quick because I, yeah. I did like it because um all too often we see Amuro more as especially after the death of Ryu and like that middle stretch we see Amuro like in his default mode now he's like a blunt object I mean that's kind of like the 
the point of Gundam, like how war has desensitized Amuro. And he's a little different compared to like, you know, I'll, I'll refer to him as pre-war Amuro. Of course, the war was going on around him. And I, I kind of like him, like like Detective Amaro. I mean, there's like um, threads of that here when he's deducing like, ah, yes, well, that plane didn't get shot down. It must be an enemy spy. And he's like working his analytic muscles here, which I, I appreciate. It kind of reminds me of that Amaro in the beginning where he's using science to like, I don't know, deduce the trajectory of a missile with an asteroid, stuff like that. The real robot shouldn't like the first 10 episode stretch. And it's, it, to me, it's a nice reminder that Amaro wasn't born a soldier and, uh, I kind of wish this episode leaned more into that, because Ignis mentioned this earlier. I thought that espionage bit could have been really fun, like them sneak, not sneaking onto the ship, but doing like some stealthy maneuvers in big tray and like, you know, finding out the dirty secrets, things like that. It is definitely interesting to me that for an episode which is titled Operation Odessa, which sort of concludes, uh, you know, the Battle of Odessa and this major wartime thing, I feel like this, you know, I mean, this bit with the pursuit of the dragonfly plane is really the sort of um, determinative bit. You know, I mean, you you could say maybe maybe the nuke, but in terms of the outcome of the battle, the discovery of the you know the traitor is the big thing. And so it's, I kind of um, it is putting aside should the traitor be a, a bigger deal. I do enjoy that it is um, it is compact in that way that it is. We're just going to show this little moment of ferreting, you know, of, of discovering the betrayal, and that is going to be the thing that really determines the outcome of the battle. Which is, which is for your, you know, your young heroic boy, that's a pretty fun outcome. Hey, yeah, actually, on that point, PMC, like this is another smart use in the narrator thought, um, because you know we don't see the uh, Battle of Odessa in all its uh, monstrosous, like the, all its traumatic glory. Um, you know, th- not only is the show like Gundam limited by budget and time, but maybe they didn't even want to animate the entire battle in the first place. This is really common in like Shakespeare plays, for example. You might have a big battle going around you, but you only see a small slice of it. Um, early HBO shows like Rome or even the first uh, few seasons of Game of Thrones, like they're very limited by um, technical constraints. So they show only very small slivers of the battle. Like we, we really get the Battle of Odessa as an after uh, thought almost by the narrator who says the Battle of Odessa has begun. And just like dropping little hints like about what's going on in the greater world around them. But I also think that that technique can be effective, too, in certain situations. So, okay. I don't want to... Hmm. We don't like to do this. Or rather, I don't like to do this. Or rather, I say that every time, and then I do it anyway. I, I do like this bit with Amaro and Elrond and Chudok and, and the whole, like, shenanigans of it all. But, but it, it doesn't... Hmm. It only makes sense... From an audience perspective, I, I don't think any anyone here has any reason to suspect Elrond at all. Judok, sure, and the fact that he's seeing Jude, he's meeting with Elrond right away, sure, that seems kind of I get, I guess I could see that as suspicious. But like to, to the degree that they can on the DL real quick come up with this kind of um, this this sting operation where they'll have it all on video in that particular room while having Judok outside already, it's fine. It's a fun bit of business, except Amuro almost gets shot. You know, uh, it's a good thing that Elrond's uh, not a good shot. It's just, I, I, I was wondering after the second viewing, I was like, does it make any sense for them to jump Elrond like this? Judok, I get. Judok was seen leaving a Zeon base, 100%. 
But, like, Elrond, I don't know if they had any... If Elrond didn't whip out his gun and was like, I'm going to fucking kill you, Amaro. <laughs> like, they have no suspicion. They don't have no reason to catch Elrond. It's fine. It's not a problem. Like, and, and again, the, the idea here is to, like PMC said, is to hinge the outcome of the battle on, on this here, right? Um, and, and I think they do a good job of doing that. I think the idea that uh, Makave was was counting on Elrond here to do this is is you know and this is the thing that really wins the battle for the Federation. It, it's it's good. It's fine. It's it accomplishes that. I I think that it's funny how this last bit is so. <laughs> it's it's very almost like um I love Lucy in the in its contrivance in a way, which is fine. Whatever. This didn't again. This is kind of why I was thinking about like wow, they really just kind of put a bow on this. Like it, it really doesn't uh, it doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, institutionally, like that's the thing is it it, it is effective. I think f- for the audience being uh be, the audience being focused on our hero like, institutionally. I, well, I don't know. Like I, the only thing, the only thing I could say is that I feel like they are trying to give some big, like military police energy to the dude in the hat because he seems to be in, in charge. But like, we don't know who that dude is. We don't really know what his role is. If he's the sort of person that can just come up to a presumably high-ranking official like Elrond and be like, "Yes, I have evidence. You are a traitor." come with me you know that that because that's you know because we come up with any one of a number of like but what what about this or what about that you know in 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 this situation and i i you know i just had to give in because i was like yeah this doesn't rise you just as you just said ignis like how would you come up with this thing how would you you know how would this be effective to secure the chain of command in the middle of the start of a battle right because that's where we are too we are at the eve of battle and you have suddenly just reorganized the chain of command, which we know the chain of command is serious. They've brought it up in Gundam before. Um, yeah, it's institutionally it's kind of whack, but well, it's fun. I, see, my problem isn't even institution. Mm. I'm, ta- I'm talking straight up story. Mm. Like, I, I, from from what we have, we have a picture of Judok leaving the base. So I'm like, hell yeah, Judok is going to jail. Yes. How, how do we get to Elrond's involved from there? Like, the the only reason to do a sting operation like that is because we suspect Elrond at the same time. And as an audience member, I just didn't... It's fine, though. It doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I get what you're saying is that, like... Like, because I think watching it, you're like, oh, Elrond would have gotten away with it if he hadn't you know given himself up like that by by declaring that he's involved with it but take it one step further and that's i think where you, where you are agnes which is like why would you do this thing for this guy right <laughs> like, that's what i'm saying exactly yeah 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 like they even say amuro says and i don't know if this is part of the sting he's like i never would have guessed it was you and like i don't know again when uh, <laughs> later when he's told about the nuke and he's like oh that's against the rules i don't know if amuro has this guile right this i don't think this was amuro's plan i think this was faceless guy's plan mm-hmm. who who ceases being faceless by the way when he's a good guy we get some real good coding with these soldiers who have their their uh, mm-hmm. hats pulled over their faces when they're bad and then yeah. when they're good he has a face uh uh shout outs by the way uh to kai who is uh holding off the the black tri star and gets a gets a star scream for his trouble ow my foot you know uh but we get a little get, bit of business with the uh gun cannon which i enjoy you know i'm a, I'm a big uh, gun cannon head over here uh black tri stars are harassing the white base uh, you know, not not really much to to say there until Kai does his cool little dive kick maneuver. Um, Salem and Amaro show up and are able to use the Schrodinger shields to defeat 
the 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 uh, doms. Uh, the the tri stars are made of pretty quick, you know, business out of are, basically. Are they just like the biggest, wettest farts in Gundam? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't feel like they did anything. Are, no. I, I, come on, Black Tri Star Defenders, please rise up and tell me why why I should because they seem like paper to me. Oh man, it's so funny because it seems like they're really popular. It seems like this is another fucking. Um, uh, they show uh, up again in Origin too. Yeah, that could Kuk- be for that reason. A Kukuru's okay. Dome kind of situation where people just like them. Um, they they were yelling at Makve in the beginning when they were um, doing their uh, tribute their, shots, the fried chicken and borscht salute or whatever, the, what, <laughs> yeah. whatever that was. Yeah, what is exactly. okay? We, I'm sorry. What is up with the with the food names? I I, I know yeah, we, it's, we it's like a, the ge- the slender jeans thing. Yeah, the slender jeans is that just it's like a, it's a it's, little, yeah, it's little just, meme, little it's motif. It's just a joke. Yeah, a little yeah. meme is for the memes. But yeah, I mean, you know. The main thing that uh, happens after this is the action beat with the nuclear weapon. Um, I I think it's interesting, you know, how much this show for a real robot show uses melee weapons. Uh, that's something I feel like the the genre will move away from very quickly as it moves forward. But you know, I I, I liked this bit. It was you know, I obviously I knew that Amro was going to succeed here, so that that wasn't where the tension was located, but. I, I you know I, I I thought it was a it was effective like I could understand you know imagining the tension of this scene, um and you know I made a joke about the squat uh, animations in this episode but I I think for the most part I I enjoy the creativity involved in providing energy and motion to the Gundam like I, obviously like there are better people or not better people that's not what I meant there are different approaches and some I like better than others but. I think the, you know, Steven, you talked about how, you know, we see comparatively little of the actual battle, but I think the way that it's conveyed with the harsh reds and oranges really helps, you know, very quickly give you the idea of, like, the hellscape of battle, right? Mm -hmm. In a way that that I don't really need, you know, we didn't really need this to be 20 minutes of, uh, uh, you know, Total War Gundam, you know, which, you know, hopefully we'll get someday. Did you like another... Oh, real quick, I, another interesting bit, too, is that our narrator, there's more tension between the narrator and the narrative, um, especially when he's narrating about General Revel, because it's almost it almost adds like a layer of historicism to this whole exercise. When the narrator goes, it is said that General Revel did not say a word. He simply waved his hand to indicate that his forces were to proceed. It was just an interesting stylistic technique and a, and a touch experimental for Gundam, too, which I was a little surprised about. It gives the feeling that we're living history, so to speak. And um, they'll experiment a bit more with that in the next episode, too. Yeah, it brings it brings us back because the previous time I think the narrator did that particular uh, stylistic flair was for the death of Garma when they talked mm, about yeah, yeah. Uh, Degwin Zabi's reaction. And uh, it's it's weird to parallel those two. I'm I'm a little uncomfortable with that. I don't know if the intention is necessarily to do that, but you know, it certainly is in my mind now. It think, also calls into doubt the credibility of the narrator too, because what if uh, what if the general revel didn't wave his hand? Well, well, so I mean, the the thing I like about it is that it adds a sort of literary quality to it. Yeah, I, I know there are people who don't like this kind of style of thing in anime. Um, the Chimera Ant arc of uh, Hunter Hunter, especially the Palace Invasion, makes use of a lot of this kind of technique to a degree that people don't like, but I think. It adds the the ability to communicate things that just the visuals don't communicate. Like, for example, Stephen, the the historicity of this, right? The the sort of feeling of 
uh, not historicity, the, the feeling of history in the making in that moment. I think that if you're just watching the show, this is just a moment of the character sending an order, right? When the narrator mm. chimes in and explains, you know, the gravity of the moment, it's it's different enough from the normal pace of things that it, as a uh, you know, an audience, you sit back and kind of consider it, or at least notice it, even if you don't take it very seriously, right? If you're just like, whatever, fuck you, Revel. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's still the story flagging to you that in what is a significant moment, the the deploying of this nuclear weapon in a case where it shouldn't be deployed, uh, you know, Revel is either. You can, you know, I think by purposefully, this is the kind of the intention here is either uncaring or, you know, brave, right? That's, that's the, the, it's the idea here is not to give you, you know, Gundam Wing might have characterized what Revel does. Gundam does not. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, Amuro blows up the nuke or rather doesn't blow up the nuke, blows it up good, not bad. Um, Ortiga or Gaia. I don't know. I think this is Ortiga. Um, he he. Guy is like the main dude. It, okay, so this one's Gaia then. Ortega yeah. was the other one. Ortega was the um, one who, who got got first. Yeah. Um. He he kind of does a um. Uh, uh. With my last breath, I curse Zoidberg before he blows up. Bigger than the nuke blows up, which I thought was interesting. But th- I think that is that's true, right? For the nuclear uh, engines that the, the yeah, Zakus they, and yeah, Doms exactly. have, they they're powered by by nuclear yeah. energy. So that's that was yeah, because that was like the. The very, the very first time we blew up, blew up a, a right. mobile suit, we pun- punched a hole inside seven. Right, exactly. Um, so the, the the nuke gets launched. Amuro, inner inner, you know, he stops it. Uh, we win the day. Makave gets away on the Zanzibar. Uh, uh, you know, he he dings his dumb crystal thing. Uh, I don't know. It looks like it's it's for maple syrup or something. I'm sure it's for wine. It's like a decanter or something. I don't know, but. Uh, it, I'm sure it's for 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 buttery buttery maple syrup. Uh, who is this? Um, do we know this dude's name? His number one here is this? Oh, uh, is that that's uh, uh, Ugarong? Oh uh, yeah, Uruganger or whatever Urgang? his name is. Urgang? Yeah, yeah, Uruganger. I love that guy. He's my he's my favorite. He's I mean, like, like the Zeon suck, but he he's he I he seems like an alright worker. He's like, but that would be lying. <laughs> <laughs> and McVeigh is like, fucking yeah, man, <laughs> that is what I'm telling you to do. Um, and I thought it was a, this is a kind of a, a cop out show that we, we, the last note we end on is this, uh, this, you know, speaking of historic moment, the, the first time that the white base crew come face to face with, uh, the guy who's been telling them to risk their lives over and over again. And we, we just kind of get this, um, kind of like a PR shot. Yeah. Yeah. You that's know? a good way to a, put it. I, I feel like. For me, there's a lot of questions. But did, I will say, shout-outs, you know who did make the shot on this shot? Job John. You can see him right here. Job John's in the crowd here. Yeah, he get getting the credit. Omer, Job John deserves credit. No, Omer? <sighs> I don't see him. I don't see my man Omer. That's fine. It is what it is. Omer's in the next episode. It's fine. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of feel like... I, I, I kind of feel like there's a lot of scenes here I would like to see where, you know, people have a lot of questions, uh, but we're going to skip all that. That <laughs> That's going to happen in some, some gray space between episode uh, 25 and 26, and it is gone forever, and I don't want you to think about it anymore. <laughs> but, um, you know, to, to wrap up 25, uh, this is 25, right? Yeah, I mean, yes. I, I liked this episode. I, I think... You know, while the I I sort of 
mourn the lack of any real characterization still. I think right now the, the density of plot is enough where it's not something I'm actively noticing as much. Like, there's stuff going on in a way that there's stuff going on. Wow, that's such an incisive, critical take. Um, the, the the things that the the narrative are putting down, and the way that it follows after another, and the density of it is such that I, I think it works really, really well for me in twenty five. Even if if it's not like I don't know the most substantive, right? I find with these kind of like pivotal battle episodes, it can be really hard to uh, tell like a story that feels important while staying within the scope of an anime production, and. Right. I like the decision to sort of split it into spy story that wins the battle in effect, and then the the high drama of the 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 nuke usage. Uh, I think it manages to convey the importance of events in the episode in in a way that I found you know pretty satisfying. And so I feel like pulling off that feat, it's good stuff. I'll, I'll give you credit for that. Yeah, I don't trust the writers of Gundam to do character episodes well. So those episodes are usually have a lot of obstacles for me to overcome as a viewer. So I much prefer the war stories, which we are treated to in this episode. So episode 25 was a pretty innocuous episode overall, even though I did bump on the, the, the use of the nuclear weapon. And I wish it was handled a little bit more substantially. Yeah, uh, I think on that note, then, why don't we head on over to Ireland to go get repairs on our White Castle? Let's do it. In my case, Boone, I can't rest till I bring this guy down with my own two hands. Yes, I know it sounds childish, perhaps. (laughs) But that vile mobile suit has put a dent in my pride. Speaking of things no one can see, First Gundam. No, I, that's not true. Many people can watch First Gundam now. Uh, uh, we well, Why don't we move on to the most important, re, you know, and most exciting uh, return of the character we all love, the Gundam Hammer. Yes. With, with episode 26, the Gundam Hammer returns. That's right. As a reward for a job well done, the White Base crew have been formally inducted into the Federation military. Wait. Hang on, that... Hmm. Uh, well, anyway, they've been ordered to Ireland for repairs. As fortunes would have it, a Zeon spy in the area reports to Madangler, which happens to be <laughs> conta- captained by Shar. Shar, having read the script, heads out to confirm that it is the White Base. Meanwhile, General Revel informs the White Base of two main things. First, their orders, to proceed to the Federation base in South America, Jabiro. Second, that those who do not wish to join the military must remain confined for one year. Amuro reflects that this is what it means to live as a soldier. Uh, uh, oh, uh, in the same meeting, Revel basically teases that there are going to be a lot more mobile suits coming, so hold your horses. Speaking of which, the local Xeon forces, under the command of Boone, who was mentioned earlier in the episode, launch an attack with some gogs. The white base can't quite mobilize, including most of the mobile suits, so the Gundam must go at it alone. Fortunately, Amuro has his greatest weapon, the Gundam Hammer! Despite this, the fight against the Cogs is a tough go. Thanks to quick thinking with Sela, Amuro is able to use the G-Bull to defeat one, then pursues the other underwater. While Amuro is triumphant ultimately, Shar is able to confirm the presence of the white base, and announces that he won't rest until he settles the score with the one who wounded his pride. 
Something I didn't mention last episode, uh, but we'll mention in this one because it starts playing right away in the most awkward way, is that uh, the ways that <laughs> Gallant Gar... Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Gallant Shar. <laughs> Uh, well, at least we've got a title for this one. I do it all Gar. the time. I, I just, I, I don't know. I always just love it when I hear like how people do. Which is not to say I delight in your misery, but I, I share the sensation. <laughs> yeah, Shallant Gar. Uh, once Gallant Shar is playing, it's usually a good time. But uh, we're 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 treated to it right away with a mid-air conversion that we've seen a million times, and it, it just brings me so much joy. What an awkward way to start this episode. It just, like, cleanly moves by so many things that I wish they would talk about instead. But that's fine. Whatever. Because we're told right away that they're heading to Ireland. And uh, we, we see this this um, new character who lives in Ireland, I guess. Uh, and uh, she is... I love this bit because she runs outside to go see the, the warship that's flying overhead. And she's looking up with her binoculars. But, like, if you see the scene, it looks like the white face is about to skim her roof. <laughs> Like, yeah. it looks like Mariah is really low to the ground. So I don't know if you need those binoculars necessarily. I mean, maybe she's I trying get... to read a serial number or something, you know? Yeah, I guess it could be a, a a camera. She might be taking a picture, right? Because we do see later a picture is sent along with the the, the, the weird, goofy, uh, you know, uh, espionage the bo- stuff yeah, we see her the do. the balloon to the buoy to the, the radio. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I love that shit, though. That spy shit? <laughs> yeah, of course. My- yeah. It's perfect old man stuff. No offense, Stephen, but this old, old, old people love this stuff. No offense, Stephen. I'm just saying, like it's none, none taken. It's a real uh, Rube Goldberg machine of uh, of stuff, and people and and old men really love to watch. You know, c- competent people do a lot of uh, uh, complicated things in order to uh, you know communicate useless information, which is what is usually happening in military films most times. Um. You know, this is this is a thing. I, you know, I'm I'm joking. This is uh, clearly something that they cared about doing effectively on the show because it co- keeps coming up. Right? We see the cousin and his. Uh, I don't know what was it. It was like a like a wire attached to like a gold tooth or something. Some kind of oh, weird yeah. chemical reaction he used to cause a spark on the door. And we've we've seen other versions of this, right? I think Char has done some stuff and. We've got the the tiny bomb strategy that has been deployed a couple times over. It reminds me in a Back to the Future three when Doc Brown goes through that elaborate process of making one ice cube, kind of like that. Yeah, so I'm sorry. I should have said small bombs, not tiny bombs. I apologize to all of my Umineko listeners. Um, so yeah, we have a, this character who I don't think we'll learn her name in this series of episodes. Spoilers. We'll learn her name in the next series of episodes, I believe. Um, but we'll call her Irish Spy. Irish spy is 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 just about her, her, her home is almost ruined by Mariah <laughs> in a way that I thought was really funny. Can I just say this real quick to all my fellow Irish freedom fighters? It's a little discouraging that even far into the future, when humanity has built space colonies in the stars, Ireland still labors under the boot of British imperialism. Bright uh, you bastard! I, I read somewhere that Bright uh, is half British. Is he? Oh wow! Yeah, there you go. Be. That explains a lot. But Northern Ireland still exists in uh, 0079. Yeah, so I, w- I was going to remark upon that too because I, I think it's I, I think there's two things. Well, I think there is a thing that is explicitly being drawn upon, which is uh, Belfast is historically an industrial city, was an important port in World War II. Uh, you know, was was b- targeted by the Blitz, you know, from the Germans. So I feel like that is like the main reason. 
that Belfast is brought up so explicitly when, mm-hmm. you know, in previous times we really... It's like, oh, what city was uh, Isolina's uh, dad the mayor of? Well, <laughs> maybe. Uh, we'll find out. Texas. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Arizona or... <laughs> like New Mexico, Maybe. hard to say, yeah. But here, you know, there's no, there's no uh, illusions about what we're up to. We we went from somewhere in Europe uh, to Belfast, and we're very much going to be uh, situated there for this uh, these repairs. Um, what is interesting, besides that, as you know, Stephen has alluded to, is that when this is coming out in 1979, we are we are in the middle of decades of the troubles which of course was the uh the fact you know the sectarian violence between the uh i'm gonna say the uh the the nationalists and the unionists or also the republicans and i don't know whatever else the british call themselves i forget (laughs) but anyway the the point is here is that at that point in time you know i i think we're too young to be familiar with the uh the extent to which this was regarded, especially Belfast, as a dangerous part of the world. That there is, I went, uh, I went there in 2013, mm. and they pointed out. I took a tour, a taxi tour of, of Belfast, and they still do like, yep, lots of murder here, here. This hotel, the most bombed hotel in the world. You know, I think it's like 36 times this hotel was bombed. Um, so some very you know serious stuff, and. I don't think they're necessarily drawing upon that here. As I said, I think they're really just kind of being just saying like, "Oh, well, this is a big wartime city. We'll 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 go over here." I think, but as Stephen did say, they do say explicitly Northern Ireland, which you know, I don't I don't know what a bunch of Japanese creatives think the outcome of this violence is. You know, as they're creating their real robot show. But interesting to see that you know that they would have kept it Northern Ireland. You know, I, I just I, I don't know. You know what? What else they would have done if they really would have thought about it? But just something, something to remark upon. Yeah, one interesting thing is how do these, if these nation states still exist in 0079, how do they exist within or under the hierarchy that is the Federation? A question that may or may not be answered. I will say, so I've been to Ireland too, and I'm not Northern Ireland, 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 and uh, I the the representation of Ireland, like the greenery, is it, it's it's a nice change of pace um, compared to some of the other environments we got. I, visually, I do like the um, the depiction of the ferna and fauna of Ireland. I will say, the uh, the depiction of Belfast looks so much like Port Knot City from Death Stranding, especially with like the monolithic <laughs> hangar that the white base is in. That I cannot unsee it. It's uh, it always comes to mind. It's a very specific cut, but nonetheless, I drew that comparison. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I thought about that. I, I wasn't, hmm, you know, I wasn't quite as as positive that when they were saying Northern Ireland, they meant it in the way that Northern Ireland means something, right? Like, and I'm not, I want to be very clear. I, I would, would uh, you know, defer to you guys on, on this is in a general conversation when it comes to this history. I'm not as familiar with it. Uh, but other than that, you know, Without seeing the original script, I'm not sure how much that was something that they were intentionally setting out mm-hmm. to like. This reminds me, there's like a throwaway gag like this in TNG where they make some kind of uh, a reference to Irish unification happening sometime mm. in the past in, in uh, America's history, right? And I remember that being a episode that was banned uh in in uh on the bbc i think i think oh, there was yeah. a i think because specifically it makes a reference to that they don't they change that line or they didn't air it. i don't know this might be hearsay sometimes stuff like this this might be like that thing where they were like 
uh, in Godzilla versus King Kong, there are two different versions. One where King Kong wins and Godzilla, and that's not true. That was never true. Uh, but anyway, you know, uh, I I feel like there for me, I, I liked this in theory for the reasons that Steven was putting out there that this should be d- a different look than we've been used to. Uh, but it's interesting how because we spend so much time in kind of an industrial area, it, it, I don't feel like we get to take advantage in the way that I, I would have liked. But it is still this is still nice. It's still different. There's still a kind of like. Uh, I have never been to Ireland in any regard, uh, but I kind of imagine this sort of overcasty kind of in a nice way sort of look mm. to and I'm getting emphatic nods. Yes, yes, that is it. <laughs> if you like desolate beaches with uh, cemetery stones that refer back to the famine and just like wallowing in melancholy, Ireland is the place to be. And I say that with all the praise in the world. I loved my time there. When I was in Belfast, it was like sunny and 55. And that was like apparently the peak time for everyone to get out in their shorts and sundresses like that. This is the <laughs> best you're going to get. So so much so that we had a tour guide who we, we will never we, we all gave her negative reviews after the fact. But she was like very much like moralistic was like, oh, these these scandalous women in their sundresses, you know, and like oh right, whatever. This is supposed to be a, a beer tour and you're making me sober. I don't appreciate it. Man, it was a beer right. tour. We did, we gave her bad reviews. <laughs> well, I did mean... you know my handle comes from a, a Joyce novel, Stephen Hero? The origin story is from a uh, his original manuscript for the Dubliners, and before Stephen Daedalus, it was Stephen Hero. That's where I grabbed my uh, nom de plume. Oh, I didn't know it was Joyce. I knew it was it was literary. I didn't know it was Joyce. That's cool. Ah, Stephen Hero. We have oh. we, we have a character named Mulligan too, like a Zeon soldier. Uh, Buck Mulligan, stately plump Buck Mulligan, is the opening line to uh, James Joyce's uh, Ulysses, one of my favorite novels. Uh, so shout outs to James Joyce, I guess. Is Mulligan the dude where when Shard's like, I'm going to head out on my um, wave race, uh, my yeah. wave runner TM to uh, to ch- check this out, and he's like, I, I, you don't have to. Uh, Boone is there. Like you can you can just tell Boone to do it, and he's like, nah. That's Mulligan. Yes. Okay. Real got quick, it. PMC. I saw your face. I know you don't like Ulysses. I saw your face when I mentioned it. <laughs> we were connected on a wavelength. There. I, I tried to. I tried to read Dubliners once, and it wasn't happening. But that's okay. Yeah, that uh, you know what? Sometimes you know, uh, uh, you, you attempt, you, you start a book, and it becomes clear this is not your book. And mm-hmm. and the healthy thing to do there is to put it down and not finish yep. reading it like a yeah. monster named Ignis Maddox. Um, <laughs> Uh, we we get a, a, a you know we we talked about or rather I talked about this this meeting with General Revel in my summary, um, and I, I I hit all the main beats right, and I just wanted to check in with you guys. Did, were there any parts of this? Like obviously, you know, I don't know. I feel like I, I'm going to go off for three hours on this, so I'm gonna I'm gonna get this out here now. Having just just kind of like breezing past the whole we're in the military now thing. Make, it makes me <laughs> it makes me upset in a way that I don't necessarily know how to like how to, to really intellectualize and put forward for our audience in a way you know which isn't helpful <laughs> as a host of a of a critical analysis podcast but like man we're we're really it feels like they already know that they're getting canceled five episodes early or whatever and they're, they're we're speeding things along almost in a way. 
But like this should be a bigger deal, right? Like there there should be people if if we had people abandoning ship not but like five episodes ago, there should be people who have thoughts or questions beyond sort of like, oh man, that's rough, <laughs> you know? And the the show really just kind of speeds past it. I don't know. I, I don't want I, I know I have feel negatively about this, but not in a way where I, I like, oh, this mars the show in some way. It's just like you know, it it makes me feel kind of that that real robot just doesn't have, even with all this time with you know whatever the forty nine episodes or wherever it ends up being. Is that correct? Forty nine episodes. Uh, forty three. Forty three. Forty three episodes. That you know, it, it it just doesn't have the time for all of the things that it needs to really dig into in order to give these big topics like the the credit that they need. I don't know. This was a sticking point for me. In a, in a way, because we acknowledged it, we had to talk about it, but nobody, none of our characters really got a chance to react to it beyond Frau Bao's concern about what will happen to the children. D- did that, did you guys have any feelings about this? Yeah, I mean, a lot of these talking points I've emphasized before, um, I'm I'm glad they're acknowledging it now because they've been part of the Federation this entire time. Like, mm. like I mentioned like way early on, like it's a smart choice conceptually on paper to alienate the white base from the Federation proper because that it gives them the distance and necessary to potentially critique power structures, but they don't do anything interesting in that space. Like I mentioned before, they could have done so many things in the you know when they weren't taking orders from the white base and they're just like floating above you know, New York or North America. There's so many places they could have gone. There's so many people they could interact with, but all we get is just stock military episodes and, um, you know, them taking orders from Federation HQ. Uh, I'm just glad they're dropping the facade because really they've been military the whole time. It's just posturing as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I, I think if they were going to... The thing that I would want, besides maybe individual character reactions, and, and which we aren't really getting, is a sort of, um, I guess maybe an acknowledgement of what it means to change from the the fight for survival which i think they were largely engaged in up through to just before the battle of odessa into being you know the the military unit that is being actively supplied and supported you know like what is like how does that change and and as you said we're just we're just not not getting that and it's um i don't know it's frustrating there's another part of this conversation that like that did feed me which maybe we can get into but yeah as far as like them oh we're the regular military now i feel like the only person who's going to be able to speak on this or have a reaction to it is based on the episode preview kai in the next episode but i mean you know obviously kai Kai's different you know he's built different yeah, i'm i'm very curious about that episode yeah um i i think that the uh this this for me is is kind of a bummer it's it's just one of those things where in in the conversation of the the uh uh meta text discussing power structures and the way that power structures ultimately you know squeeze the life out of the the people who participate in them for whatever reason that they participate in you know i, I it's just not very uh juicy not very compelling you know uh and mostly because maybe it's because i i i'm a character person more than a plot person i kind of wish this was rooted in in character reaction a little tiny bit more 
Like, if if we just got a, a like, because Bright and Mirai, they're like, cool, easy for me. I'll join the Maritime. I don't agree with this ethically, but uh, I, whatever. This was already kind of a trajectory I was on. And Sayla's like, yes, this will forward my my plans to to get revenge on the zombie family, which I will do with the uh, military apparatus of the Federation. I'm not, listen, I don't know if that's what's going on. I'm just saying at least that would be a an angle. And Amuro would be like, dang, you know. Uh, my destiny is with the Gundam, and I want just just want to be as close to the Gundam as possible. So I'm going to stick around. But man, this sucks. Power structures are bad. Maybe humanity's bad. I don't know. But like because it's not rooted in any of that, because we we've only got so much time, and and I guess you know I, I can sort of semi suspect that this has something to do with you know pressure to to throw some more stuff out here, right? Because we kind of get almost like a like Revel almost has a, like a oh almost forgot. Uh, you know, we might have created a ripple effect with the Gundam, oopsie doopsie, in a way that, like, I don't know. Part of, I, I'm sort of frustrated with the way that this is presented, as though, like, because uh, I, you know, I want to remind you guys that that Zeon did throw a nuke at them last episode, so like the escalation was happening one way or the other, right? Mm. I, I don't really think it has anything to do with the Gundam. <laughs> like, well, so well, I, I, this is the part I was talking about in terms of of me me being fed because I. I think uh, we had had a discussion in the very, very first episode when we meet Temeray, and Temeray is like, "Here's, here's my thing, the Gundam. This will, this will end the war. <laughs> this will make everything right. better." Right. And regardless of how convincing or true it is, General Revel saying, "Whoops, looks like the Gundam caused you know more mobile suits of uh, you know more sinister nature to be created." Uh, it. I don't know if it's in conversation with that that Temray in the distant past, but it definitely feels like it to me. And I, and I really appreciate them saying like, "No, actually, cool weapons will just cause more cool weapons to be made. They don't they won't bring peace. Like this is this is how it be." Um, so I I kind of enjoyed that admission. It definitely feels like it was being buried behind like, uh, "We're going to imprison you if you don't cooperate." Uh, also, by the way, the things you're doing are definitely only making things worse for yourself. Uh, yeah, I like that read. I just wish there was more intentionality yeah. or like the, the connective tissue between those two points was more obvious because I just kept hearing, yo, we got some dope mobile suits coming on up on the way here. We got some, what the, you know, the big zombie, but they call the, it something else, the mobile the, armor. Yeah. I mean, I do like the cool mobile suits. Like, I do love all oh, these yeah. mobile suits. I mean, whenever we can talk about the GOG, we can talk about the GOG. It's great. Oh, yeah. I'm right there. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I, PMC, uh, I love you and respect you, mm-hmm. and I think that's a good read, and I, I'm going to roll with it, but uh, I, I do want to emphasize my my previous point of, they did throw a nuke the last episode, yeah. that, 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 you know, I, it doesn't really matter what, what kind of mobile suit that the Federation came up with, not really, so like, the point is good, and and I and I from an artistic point of view, I like that, and and I bet you if you asked Tamino, he'd be like, hell yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I meant for it to be. Um, but I want to stress once again that they threw a nuke the last episode, so it doesn't to to me to create some kind of connected tissue between like, oh, you guys using this thing to defend yourself, it has actually made things worse. Like fuck you. I don't like not you PMC. This mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. your fault. That's just my reaction. To yeah, that. it's fine. I think you're right, and I think that's a good point, and I think it's one that we should roll with. But I, I, I wanted to get that out there. Um, why don't we, why don't we go ahead and talk about the gogs, right? Because uh, the the majority of the action of the episode begins when Boone's unit shows up to to try and cut cut Shar's nose off, you know, try and get some some action in uh, at Belfast. 
uh, before Shar can do anything about it. And uh, they attack with these new uh, aquatic mobile suits. Oh, something I did want to mention, something we've talked about in the past, in the very beginning of, of Mechanation's history, is the way the challenge of underwater combat and how that's mm. been a focus of Mobile Suit Gundam for a long time. And watching this episode, it became clear to me that the opening shot of 0080 is definitely a callback to this shot of Boone's submarine, uh, or or rather the the uh, uh, what do they call it? It's called the Mad Dangler. But if you listen to how they say it in Japanese, they're saying Madangler, which kills <laughs> me. Fucking love that. So it's obviously the Mad Angler. Ignore me, but I'm gonna keep calling it the Mad Angler. <laughs> it's. Uh, it also reminded me of the appearance of Zex in Gundam Wing in the first episode with him and his men on the sub. Yeah, it's it's it, you know it's something that that I I definitely uh, recognized as soon as we saw it, and I thought it was really cool. It's the sort of thing that is maybe like obvious or or I don't even know exploited exploitative maybe. But that shot of them creeping out of the darkness straight on towards the audience is really effective still. Even though I think this is like the fourth time we've seen it. it this would have been the first, you know, chronologically though. Yeah. I, I also want to note, uh, speaking of uh, coding and who are, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, um, I don't necessarily, I mean, besides maybe the claws, I don't know, necessarily know I have strongly feelings strong feelings about the GOG being evil, but... The submarines are all extremely evil. Like they are cut from the same house that the the zombies live in. Oh, see, I I thought the god I like the god design because how menacing it looks. It, it reminds me of like some kind of like creature in that lurks in the deep. Like for me, it's singularly menacing. It reminds reminds me of like some passages from Melville describing uh, Moby Dick under the waves because I think it, it really nails those amphibian vibes. Mm. I I liked how they put thought into all right this. Mobile suit operates. It's it's engineered to operate under the ocean. So let's let's give it a you know some aquatic vibes. Um, I'm not sure if they nailed the the complete real robot aesthetic there, but it, it definitely looks cool, like something that hunts you in the darkness. I loved it. For me, the gog is it, the true terror of the seas in the best way possible. Yeah, uh, I don't I don't really. Uh... <laughs> I love how it moves. I, I had to turn on that 0080 scene immediately. I, I, I love that scene, the opening I, uh, shot. I don't really like it. <laughs> the gog, anyway, I, I I don't... What about its big claws? It's got such beautiful hands. And, and they use them to great effect in this episode, too, right? Where they, he puts the puncture holes in the head of, of the Gundam, and the freeze gel pops out of its head, which is great. I love freeze gel. It yeah. reminds me of my space bubbles. It's um <laughs> yeah the, the the I definitely like some of the return of the the sci-fi logic of avoiding those uh, depth charges. I thought that was cool. Um even though it's like spaghetti, it's like a launch of sp- red spaghetti that they shoot out, but that's fine. You know what? Whatever works. Um yeah, it's the, for the gogs. I I don't really They're funny little guys. I'll give you that. <laughs> like I I think that's that's pretty good. Um, I don't know. There's something about the the design of them that makes me think of the the cheaper kinds of toys that you can get where they they are not modular that that you can't really pose them. They're just sort of a, a plastic mold of like that you're gonna get them this way and that's what they can do. You know what I mean? They're they're not uh, posable or very you know playable. They're very much just. A statue in place and that's kind of what the the gogs remind me of they don't feel very uh, uh and and i think you you can notice that best when they're in the water and they're kind of in like scrunch form a little bit and that's how how they can move quickest is in that scrunch form uh even like the way they attack i i think that their like abdomen 
guns are I, I, I didn't really like how unclear what the that weaponry was you know like there's a very kind of like so we get this doofy little vehicle with a big chain gun on its back and we establish aha vulcan guns can't hurt the gog um but i don't know what the gog is doing it just kind of shoots out a lot of dots like a big old mess of dots out of its abdomen I don't know. It's it, uh, I don't I don't I'm not trying to be a stinker here. Uh, I it just wasn't it wasn't really my favorite. The the bit where it steps forward and the foot just kind of like OSHA slides into the truck and the truck explodes. <laughs> very good. It's very yeah, funny to me. It's it's funny, you know, um the Doms uh had the 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 skating, the air skating, right? And that kind of movement was stiff, but it le- it lent to them an agility that that was convincing, right? Like they were able to move those guys around without having to animate them tons and tons. But these little guys, I don't know. It- it's fine, you know. I it's gonna pave the way for aquatic Zeon mechs later that I do like, you know, like the uh uh, uh who-, who is it? Double eighty, the Gelgoog? Is that that guy? Well, is it the Gog? High Gog, High Gog, that's the one. High Gog's great. High Gog with, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say about the the color scheme. Going off what you were saying about toys, I definitely felt like the Gogs had a color scheme that was extremely like we have a lot of this mold sitting around. Yes, (laughs) that's very much what the colors made me think of. It just, and I don't mean this in the necessarily negative way. It just looks like a McDonald's Happy Meal toy to me. It just looks, it looks like that level of of toy in a way that's like i don't know but you know what the, 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 what's fine i i'll i'll cop to this to being wrong on this one that's fine maybe i was just in a bad mood for this one that's that's p- totally fine um we did skip over um irish spies kind of uh, uh attempts to uh, uh i mean i don't know what this is this might not be anything she might just be mingling i i, I assumed that she was attempting some kind of like i don't know just like light poisoning you know, not necessarily like fatal, just like, hey, buy, I'm, I'm cute, buy, buy my delicious s- snacks or whatever, uh, and then they're all full of arsenic or what have you. You know, the, like, you know, Nazi hunter shit, mm-hmm, it, that, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Um, but it's it's hard to say at this point. Maybe we'll find out next episode. Yeah. But it doesn't work. Kai doesn't, no. she's, he's, Kai's kind of like. Kai's impervious. Yeah. <laughs> he's yeah, like, I'm. I don't want any of I'm, that shit. Well, bye. <laughs> I'm very curious. They, they, they could do some interesting things, I think, this with the character, but I'm not sure if they'll go in that direction. So I, I read it as she, like, routinely does this, like, sells these wares, these sundry goods to get information, because if she's chilling around the Federation base, she might overhear something that the officers are saying. I also thought maybe, maybe she actually, even in addition to being a Zeon spy, she has to sell these goods to make ends meet. Like, maybe the war or the Federation's man- management or mismanagement of the region has, like, maybe, I don't know, devastated the local economy. Um, so maybe that forced her to cozy up to Zeon for, I don't know, a job or food. Or maybe she has an axe to grind. Who knows? Or maybe she's just a Zeon true believer, but I, I'm very interested about her characterization. Yeah. I also am... Uh, uh, th- th- it's fine. It doesn't really matter. But, like, uh, it's just I'm getting tired of, like, convenient Zeon people just kind of being around. And, you know, it's fine. Whatever. It's fine. It's just a story. But, like, I don't know. It just feels like we're it, it is it, like it's fine drama needs to happen on the show it's just funny that there was uh, a a zeon spy 
who happens to have the ability to communicate the the white bases around specifically to Shar, who is around. It's just like I don't know. Obviously, stuff needs to happen on the show, but it it's just like it's just a lot. I don't know. It's fine. I, I I'm getting blank looks from the two of you, so maybe <laughs> this didn't occur to me to you guys this way. But I was I- like. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I remember a little bit of where this goes, so that's probably why they didn't get it too much for me, but it definitely is it definitely is a lot that wherever we go, Xeon are, like, clever, competent, and have friends, it feels like. And it just, I mean, it, it creates action on the show, but it doesn't necessarily represent uh, a war of two sides. It's not even just that i'm not like if for me it, it, the the real frustration that i have is that it it makes this situation where zeon is simultaneously like deeply threatening and all-encompassing but also like totally impotent and defeatable like it, it's it's kind of this having its cake and eating it too that i'm tired of a little bit but that doesn't mean there's a real problem with the show because stuff needs to happen you know like it needs to be action from episode to episode it's just this thing where it's like not only was there a spy super high up in uh federation like power structure that we're never going to see any ripple effect of as far as like the changes that will cause if any but like in the immediate next episode there's just another one right and like it looks like you know we didn't learn anything in this episode but she has like a, a picture that falls over in the, the setup and like i don't know it probably will be like uh my my kid brother or my son or something and it's just like i don't know whatever it's not it's not that that's a bad motivation or something like that it's just i wish it, it would be a counter motivation where it's like oh the federation took my dad and or you know they the federation soldiers occupied my town and one of them killed my mom something but if it's just gonna be like uh you know i'm getting paid (laughs) or something I, i just i just don't know at that point then like it's not that there's no point to that. I, I'm just bored by it. It's just not interesting. It's it's sort of... And it's especially weird in this episode, Solo, because, like, we spend a lot of time setting her up and she doesn't do anything. She's just, just sort, of, sort of about. I don't know. Yeah. I, is it, it... Did this... Did any of this kind of rub for you guys or not really? I think the world building as it pertains to Xeon is very elastic. Um, it is whatever the writers need them to be, and it's usually... And whereas the Federation seems to be a bit more, I don't know, hampered by real world logic at times, and that discrepancy can be frustrating for me. Uh, so we get a, a interesting scene with Revel, who watching over the battle as it takes place, which is this sort of like, he, he almost sort of shakes his fist at the way that times have changed a little bit. Like he's sort of frustrated with the way that everything seems to hinge on mobile suits. Um which is funny because the the winning stroke of this battle is a tank. <laughs> yeah, this part definitely was uh, probably the inspiration for the old general early on in Gundam Wing who similarly complains about mobile suits. I think it was, was that guy like named Napoleon or something. Wasn't Napoleon there? Bonaparte? Yeah, yeah, he had the Zeppelin. Okay, yeah, yeah, that guy with very very big rebel energy, as we as I now know. Almost assuredly. Um. Yeah, the G bull is is talked about a lot here. We, what we see is a, the G bull? The G bull appears to be when you take the top half of the G fighter and use it as a tank. 
it appears to be what the okay. G-Bolt is. That, that it's a completely grounded top half of the G-Fighter is what it appears to be. Someone, you know, chime in at mechanationspod at twitter.com. If we were wrong, tweet at us or send us an email. We would love to hear that. But that's what it looks like to me. Okay. Uh, you know, um, it's it just looks like a, a, you know, like when... When you have modular toys, you'll sometimes get modes that are very clearly impractical, but someone was like, I'm going to come up with four modes for this thing, and one of them is going to be like, well, uh, it's attached to the back, but its legs are completely splayed out and behind it, and there you go, dragon mode, you know, or something like that. Of course. That's kind of the feeling I get from uh, bull mode here. It kind of puts me in mind of the, not really, but my first thought when I heard G-Bull was, oh... Is this going to be some uh, uh, some some Beast Wars transfusers situation? Is this going to be Optimus Primal on his on his on his skateboard? Uh, you know, that's kind of my initial thought. Uh, shout out to anybody who knows what I'm talking about. But uh, you know, it, it's it's not. It's just kind of a tank. It's just like what if the what if we had half a gun gun tank? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I don't know. It works because it works, right? It works because right. it's new. There is an interesting scene that is kind of in the Gundam uh, category of of reasoning out the action where we see Sela and Omer, you know, hashing out what their options are. And Omer is like, we can do this and this or we can do this. And there are pluses and minuses to both. And it's not strictly necessary for the episode like it's not really connected to any particular drama like you know sometimes in previous episodes we've got bits like this where it's like oh we shouldn't have deployed this we should deploy this but like that usually just gets solved by deploying the right thing and then everything works and in this episode it's more just kind of demonstrating how the the competency at play is starting to evolve Right, we're we're getting a lot less scenes of people unsure they can do things, and a lot more scenes of people being like, "Well, we could do this or this, but we don't really know what's best, and we're gonna just do whatever works in the moment." Uh, you know, shout outs to Omer in this in this episode a bunch. Uh, uh, but it's it's the the battles with the Gogs kind of are a back and forth of the Gogs are very are very strong and can withstand a, a lot of punishment. Uh, uh, including the 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 powerful indomitable G hammer. I, I refuse this cannon. I I hundred percent. I have punched many gogs with G hammer, and they usually blow up. Let me assure you. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's it, it, here's my thing. Uh, uh, this is propaganda from Tamino. Yeah. Uh, I I don't accept this. The 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 G G hammer is unstoppable. Uh. The, this the 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 whole episode is animated beautifully. You know, I I, I don't want to to. I feel like we talk about uh, Yas all the time here. Uh, but is this, this a Yas episode? I can't yeah, remember. This is a Yas one. This is a uh, script was yeah. Kenichi Matsuzaki, unit director Ryoji Fujiwara, animation director Yoshikazu Yasuhiko. Uh, and you know, I don't want to be like you could tell, but you you can tell. <laughs> this there, one I mean, is... Some of the face stuff, like the, all the faces around the spy interacting with with Kai Namuro, like that's all incredible. Even uh, at, the, at the end of the episode, when when Frau finally hears Amaro emerging from the water and she turns around, like that's really good. And then of course you get that that goddamn whatever that Char's doing at the end of the episode. <laughs> he just sort of puts his face <laughs> in the camera. It's really annoying to me that this episode's called Char Returns and Char is not in it. Not he really. Doesn't, he doesn't no. return in this one. He shows up at the ass end and the very beginning. Um, speaking of competency evolving, I, I do, I was kind of, um, 
it's interesting because at the beginning of the last episode, there is a, a kind of implied drama between Amaro and Frau Bao that has completely evaporated by this one, where they're kind of back to that same neutral friend plus level that they were at, where like Amaro, it's Amaro who is is speaking out. Like, I mean, Frau is the one who asks, like, "Hey, I don't want to join the fucking military. What about me?" And it's Amaro who's like, "Well, that that sucks. Like, there's a ton of people who who shouldn't have to fight, you know." In a way that is is consistent with his general point of view on things. Um, and later there is a beat that I I kind of it's rife for X Men level drama. Where, uh, you know, Frau has taken over Sela's comm duties and Frau, you know, Amaro is obviously less able to take orders from Frau in a way that he just didn't have the same issues with Sela. And, and like, there's a way that that kind of, you know, uh, informal relationship that their friendship is could get in the way of their duties that would be, like, a fun story to tell. And I, I, I hope that will be something that happens. I just don't, I just don't really think it will. <laughs> You know, I was just thinking about how if I if 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 I was in comms and PMC was was launching in the Gundam or whatever, and I was like, "All right, PMC, uh, you're good to go," and, and he was like, "What? What?" <laughs> and I was just in in fucking comms with Bright behind me, going "What?" into my microphone over and over again <laughs> with PMC, like nothing would get done, and and that's this moment where. Amuro, I guess, is kind of teasing Frau about how how much she's kind of almost mimicking Sela is is kind of a hint towards that that I, I kind of enjoyed, even if this is like the only time we'll ever see this. I know so many moments in Gundam are rife for character beats like this, and the show is just not interested in delivering us that. Uh, so uh, you know, the Gundam fights the the go- the googs, the gogs, the geeks. <laughs> Um, uh, the, the beeps, the sweeps, and the creeps. Uh, hey, that's not always lost. <laughs> um, I did, I did like the the um uh, attacks on the the Gundam's head in order to kind of inspire Amuro to just do that. <laughs> it's good show logic, right? Even if the the actual battle logic is you know obvious of like destroy their visuals, you know that's that's kind of a big deal for something like this. But it was still cool. It, this kind of underwater fight, I feel like you see the logic of this over time where you have someone who's more used to that environment and the other person who needs to adjust. Um, but it wasn't, like, painful. I feel like the conclusion to that made sense. Um, and I, you know, and was the other payoff was, as, as PMC pointed out, was the moment where Frau excitedly announces that Amaro is coming back out, that everything's going to be okay. And even Revel has a moment where he's like, yes... The Gundam. He actually, there's a moment, a kind of like a reverent shot of the Gundam, even after uh, it comes out of the the Belfast, you know, port. After or it emerges like a shark. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I, you know, it's interesting, right? Because the only part of the, my frustration with the the Irish spy is that we don't get any Federation citizens, you know, Irish Federation citizens who are just in, you know, working that day as the Gundam, like, it's, uh, emerges from the sea after defeating a Gog and, you know, getting back to work or whatever. No one reacts, right? No one has a, a moment where we can see how people around here react to having a Federation repair base in their city, right? <laughs> like, it's just, you know, it's the sort of thing where, like, imagine having this repair ship on 
you know, New York or whatever, or like a, like a huge metropolitan area. Like I assume Belfast is like, it's a shame that the only person we see is someone who's already actively antagonistic for whatever reason. Uh, you know, maybe that's just me. That's fine. That's a great space for like potential humor too. I just imagine these Irish workers completely unfazed by the, uh, the white base that lands right next to them as they're focused on whatever their daily routines are. Yeah, I mean, this is this speaks to the, uh, the 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 lack of kind of information we have about the state of things, right? Because you know, you could imagine a world where the presence of a Federation base in Northern Ireland would be uh, conflicted, <laughs> to say the least, right? Like, you know, uh, it feels like my understanding of things is that that people feel very strongly, you know. <laughs> But it's fine. Whatever. This is not the issue of the episode. The next thing we see is Char on his Rave Runner TM uh, heading back to, to the sub. And it does a cool cool little, like, uh, yeah, people see saw. It's like a, this is a just cause move if I've ever seen one yeah. where it just kind of scoots onto the submarine. It's so interesting as, a, as a, uh, a person watching it because you see it and you're like, is this is this showing off or is this just how you would do it? <laughs> and and the show tells us explicitly by having someone react. Right, exactly. Um just, it looks like a it, it looks like a uh, 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 um a speed run move. It looks mm-hmm. like something you do to skip some frames. Yeah, you just bump into this wall and it pops you up into the air and you you're at the end end. That's right. it. Exactly. And you land perfectly onto the 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 boat. Um we see I guess it's this is Boone's ship, maybe? Yeah. Is Boone the guy with the hat? Yes, he, he's hunting okay. for Red October. Yeah. <laughs> but um, he is, uh, he's like, ah, oh, damn, I got I got fucked up by that Gundam. And Shard's like, yeah, you did. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> same, same, bro. Same. Yeah, I'm going to, I hate that guy. I'm going to mess him up myself. Um, I like this bit. Like, we were making fun of Shar and the crazy face that he makes. Um, but... Or, you know, the the something I do like about this crazy face is that the, it's the most, to me, he's looked like Char from, like, you can see Char from Char's counterattack, a baby Char from Char's counterattack in that shot. Mm-hmm. You can actually see him in a way that, I, I you know, it feels like they know for sure what Char looks like in a way you know, that we saw kind of cartoon buff Char or, you know, diagonal screamy Char, what have you. This this kind of feels like it's like, haha, enjoy the beautiful Char is back with us now. Um, I also enjoyed this scene because there's some, sometimes there's some conversation about how much Amaro and Char are like rivals for one another. And here we have Char like turning to the camera and <laughs> saying to the audience, like, I'm going to get that fucking guy. <laughs> <laughs> in a way that I really appreciated. It's like, oh, okay, it's not subtext at all. <laughs> I mean, I know it's not subtext. I've seen the show before, but it, it's very funny. Now, and of course, you can you could argue that he's talking about the Gundam here and not the pilot, but I feel like the pilot is, is implicit. I feel like, obviously, he's talking about the pilot. Uh, and at this point, we've moved beyond the like question of, is Amuro actually good at this, or is it the Gundam? I, I think now we can definitively say Amuro is good at this, right? Yeah. Um, Especially, you know, he barely, he only used the Gundam half the time in this episode. The other time it was the, the G-Bull, which we don't really know what it is. <laughs> no one on the show. <laughs> and I guess that's the last beat, right? He gets the, the data from Samus' scan mm. visor on the Gundam. 
and uh, uh, that that that's credits, right? Yeah. That's, that takes us to the next episode with uh, Kai and Irish Spy, right? Mm-hmm. That, that seems to be the the plot for the next one. Um, so it has nothing to do with Shar, unless Irish Spy works for Shar. Yeah, I mean, we'll find out. Like Shar, he's returned. That was the name of the episode, so he's returned. What, what's he? What is he going to do? Anything? We'll we'll find out. Next I guess time. the preview does say immediately under Shar's command, the attack to eliminate Y Space resumes. So there you go. I guess Irish yeah. Spy does work for Shar. Um, Steven, do you like how all the the like like you know we we joked about the hunt for Red October, but do you like all the misty locales? I do. Yeah. That's a great any any grizzly a grizzly like seaman real I jokes aside really does it for me. <laughs> yeah, it, it, you know, I was going to say this is some old old man in the sea Hemingway sort of sort of stuff going on. Yeah. Um not really, not literally. I just mean image wise. <laughs> yeah, I guess then that'll that'll do it for for our discussions for this week's episode. Did you did you guys like 26? Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, we're in a in a comfortable like for me like pretty in innocuous Gundam episodes. Like thinking back to when Amro like triumphantly oh, no. um, breaches the waves is very similar to the episode earlier on when you know they don't know if he's going to make it through the gravity Earth's gravity when they're re-entering it, and he does, and everyone's happy. It's kind of diminishing returns for me just because I'm not really emotionally invested in the characters, so I don't really have the opportunity to cheer with Frau, but there are less roadblocks to overcome with these episodes than previous episodes, so I do appreciate this middle stretch for that. I like that we have the big change of scenery. Like, obviously, as you can tell, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan and interested in Irish stuff, but even just having the change of scenery from the like generic central asia asia east europe locations uh you know is just a welcome uh, thing doing amphibious stuff welcome being a little more free with the mobile suits certainly makes the action uh more interesting you know even even if uh you know we have questions to ask about like what's more important mobile suits or nukes if we're, we're going to spend time doing the action, I think having you know having the gogs, having the Gundam hammer back, doing weird configurations to the point where I have to ask, what is the G bull exactly? Uh, you know, that stuff is keeping it interesting for me, and I'm glad that those things are accelerating. Uh, and I'm you know I, I had mentioned before that I was looking forward to the Belfast episodes, and I feel like this one, I'm I'm on board, but we need to wait for next time to see if it, if it lands for me. Yeah, uh, you know, last week we were firmly in a super robot zone with all of our goofy toys we keep adding to the arsenal, and we got a short break from it with the Battle of Odessa, I think, which which dealt much more seriously with real robot storytelling elements, and uh, and I think while this is all going on, it has done a lot of work towards helping me forget about all of the story elements that they tried to deploy in the first half of the show that that now they don't really want us to think about anymore. <laughs> um, and I think that's largely effective. Now, is this kind of rote? Is this kind of typical for the genre, I would say? Like, even the, the, the like, the drama of will he, you know, come up from the ocean is a pretty typical giant robot way of like imagine a dragon ball z episode where a character is hit with an attack and there's a bunch of smoke in the air right and they're like ah, i got him and then the smoke clears and they didn't get him like that's exactly how rote this is you know and not in a bad way like it's fine it's a fun little moment you know but it's it's i think that it is inoffensive in a way that i i was able to kind of sit back and watch what what I consider to be like fine episodes of First Gundam. I think having it explicitly in Ireland was interesting. It's just just as a, a setting that rarely gets visited in any anime period. 
Yeah, it could be the only time we are in Ireland in a Mecha show on Mecha Nations. Nothing else comes to mind. Well, yeah. if we ever get to Double Zeta, we'll be back. Oh. Yeah, we'll be back. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we'll never know. Maybe we'll discover something. Maybe um, maybe uh, Aura Battler Dunbine takes place in Ireland. I don't know. <laughs> maybe Magic Knight Re-Earth's Metaverse takes place in Ireland. I don't know. Um. But what we definitely know doesn't take place in Ireland is the internet, where Twitter is, where you can find us at MechanationsPod at Twitter.com. That's not true. The, I- I- the Irish have internet. How else would we get Irish Simpsons memes? Uh, uh, or uh, PMC's other favorite Twitter pastime, uh, uh, Shepherd Twitter. Shepherd Twitter, the best. <laughs> God, I never get tired Wait, of is Shepherd that a Twitter. Mass Effect reference or just Shepherds? Like, no. no, I meant literally Shepherds. Like, oh, there, cool. are, there are just accounts that just post tw- tweets of sheep and sheepdogs, and it's very good. Yeah, it's good stuff. Very uh, wholesome, I approve. Well, and while you should also follow those t- Twitter accounts, you should also follow us on Twitter at Machinations Pod. You could follow me at Ignis Maddox. You could follow Steven at underscore Steven underscore Hero. And PMC is at PMC Trilogy, I think. I think all those are right. Uh, 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 in the meantime, uh, you know, catch us next time for that's not how that phrase goes, but that's fine. I'm just podcasting. Next time, you can catch us talking about 27 and 28. Which I think twenty seven and twenty eight are the conclusion of this Irish spy. I believe drama? so. Yeah, because yeah. I think uh, I think twenty eight's called Across the Atlantic Ocean, which sounds like we have left Belfast. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I remember what happens to Irish spy. Yeah. I do not believe she makes it across the Atlantic Ocean. No. Is my is my memory? Yeah, about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, anyway, <laughs> maybe maybe next time we'll keep a female character on First Gundam. Probably not. <laughs> But Tomino it, laughs in the background. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, Tomino has come here to laugh at us. But um, I was one of your hosts, Ignis Maddox. Steven Hero. PMC Trilogy. And uh, speaking of which, here he is. Here comes Tomino. Here, yep, he's laughing. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's how he laughs, but I went with it. <laughs> I did the research. It's spot on. It's right, canon. Good, good. It's canon. It's canon now, folks. Thank you. So PMC can edit this audio. Three, two, one, clap. I feel like Irish people would hate White Castle. Like people who live in Ireland specifically. Maybe not. I don't know. This is any. Anyway, we can. We will return to this after the break. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.